Welcome to Watch Korean Cinema 13 on the movies Chilsu and Mansu and Nowhere to Hide. And what do you get when pairing up movies where the still and straightforward is mind-blowing and when the rabid, perfectly indulgent is also mind-blowing? I'm not quite sure, actually, <laughs> the answer to that, but you get enough reason uh, for... Um, to watch movies here for the crew here at Watch Korean Cinema to examine two classic works, starting with Park Kwan Soo's 1988 drama Chil Soo and Mansu. And in the second half, we look at Lee Myung Se's 1999 hyper stylized hunt for an assassin in the form of Nowhere to Hide. A connection between the movies, you ask, is there, an, is there one? Well, if you, if you did ask, then here's the answer, and it's uh, I, I can't take credit for it. It's the suggestion of uh, Paul and uh, Rufus combined. But here's the answer: the male leads are the same in the two movies. So there you go. We'll talk about all of that. And I am Kenny B, and with me is Hangul Celluloid Paul Quinn. So good evening, buddy, and hello. Good evening. And uh, Rufus Duram will appear in separate segments as well, as he couldn't join us, but he's keen on sharing his thoughts on the movies and the players that we'll be talking about. So uh, let's head into it. But first of all, uh, some contact information briefly. This is What's Korean Cinema on the Podcast on Fire Network. Website podcastonfire.com. This show, all the other shows and the bonus episodes reside there. Email for feedback, podcastonfire at googlemail.com. Join us at Facebook, like our page, facebook.com forward slash POF network. And also join the main dialogue between uh, members and all the updates of the shows in progress over at our discussion group. Uh, follow the link on the page I just said or type in Podcast on Fire Network in the Facebook search box and that will get you a group. And we also tweet at twitter.com forward slash podcast on fire. My website is sogoodreviews.com where I do my writing. And uh, re- recently I reviewed, it's not up yet, but I reviewed this uh, um, I suppose it's a mainland Hong Kong co-production called Battle of Wits with Andy Lau and as it turns out one of the leads in tonight's two movies is in that movie I didn't know it was like I recognize that guy I recognize that name what oh <laughs> you know now now when I sat down with the research again for this episode I realized that I watched the Ansung Ki in Battle of Wits as late as uh, 2006 so uh, the all silent assassin from Nowhere to Hide has scenes with Andy Lau in A Battle of Wits. So, there you go. And uh, furthermore, sleazykvideo.com is where I'll do my video reviews. And so good reviews. Otherwise, it's uh, your mix of uh, Taiwan Black movies, Ninja Exploitation, Category 3 movies, and whatever I like. Which is, I, I like a lot, but uh, the main reviews are, are of uh, that uh, subject, of those subjects that I just said. And I tweet at twitter.com forward slash so good reviews. What's Korean Cinema is available on iTunes. Rate and subscribe to us. So you can rate via just a star rating or take a minute or two out of your busy life to write a written uh, comment if you like to show what you like to show. So uh, thank you very much to those of you. Who have done so and you can also stream us via stitcher radio available online but the application is the smoothest way to experience uh, streaming podcasts including ours so for instance if you just type in what's korean cinema in the search function in stitcher that will get you all the latest uh, shows that we've done but you can also add us to your favorites uh, so that's me Tangled celluloid uh, plug your website again and uh, what's been going on in uh, 2014 any uh, notables uh, in terms of uh, Interviews? Pretty much. It's it's building up. I mean, the last time we spoke, everything had sort of died off after Christmas and, you know, tiredness was 
just everywhere. But it's all picked up again. It's all going quite nicely. Um, for anybody that doesn't know, I'm Paul. I run HangleCelluloid.com. I'm on Facebook at Facebook.com slash HangleCelluloid. I'm on Twitter at Twitter.com slash HangleCelluloid. You can catch me in Unfolded magazine every couple of months. I do a sort of a, a themed article that goes for page after page after page. Um, it's a rambling Paul. We also know you as rambling Paul, ranting Paul. You know, it's got to be done. It's got to be done. Um, and if you fancy seeing me do it in person, um, go out and buy the UK DVD of Boomerang Family because I've got my first filmed interview on the special features. This is That's my first shameless plug of the night, um, which I'm quite proud of, mainly because they really only show the back of my head, and that's my best feature. <laughs> so, um, you know, check it out. It's, it's, it's like, why don't you shoot me from the front? Well... We, uh, it's a better angle from this. Okay, that's cool, I guess. Exactly. I, I'm happy for the back of my head to be known throughout everywhere, as long as I'm hey, sort of... Hey, uh, Hong Kong cinema had a classic, uh, iconic uh, actor in terms of that and performance. You remember the movie God of Gamblers with Chai, in fact, and his Dawson, the famous gambling king? Yeah. Uh, he never was caught on camera and all there was ever was a shot of him from behind the back of his head so you're as cool as god of gamblers dude it's it's the way to do it it's you know you keep that anonymity and you can sort of say look that's me like it's back of my head um so you know if you're bored it's a decent enough little interview the movie's quite funny and this is part window uh, films is it it is it is Excellent. And there's another, there's another one coming out in a couple of months, which I don't know if I'm meant to tell you about yet, but um, behind the camera, uh, one of my interviews is on that as well, and that was a really difficult interview. Mm. Oh, oh, nasty. I had to... uh, a story for a later day when uh, all the uh, legalities have, uh, <laughs> have disappeared and there's uh, no chance of any courtroom battles uh, telling, uh, after uh, exactly, that story. Exactly. After, after the copyright's gone, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more. Um, but yeah, this site's going on, review's going up. I did uh, first interview of the year a couple of days ago with a, a small director in Korea who spoke to me in English. His English was impeccable. We actually spoke about this camp on Facebook, I think. Oh, just, that was the guy who retweeted, retweeted you. And, uh, you know, and, and that, was, that was just me going, hey, look at me. Um, if no one else going to do it, Paul, then might as well be you. You know, no one else is going to go, hey, look at Paul. <laughs> well, exactly. you got to get up and stamp your feet, really. So it's all built in nicely. Um, check the site out, et cetera, et cetera. Right on. Uh, a brief rundown of what we're doing here. I mean, this is, will all be in the show notes as well. Uh, each segment will have a running time next to it, so you can jump ahead if you want to know where to hide the interview and what have you. So in short, I mean, we're starting with Chilsu and Mansu. Uh, talk of uh, the director Park Kwan Su, his, uh, his bio in, in, in essence, essence and the background of the movie and kind of why. It's important, obviously, we'll do that in the review as well. And after we have done so, uh, talked off the director and uh, the movie's background in general, we will discuss the movie. Uh, there will be a break, and after that, nowhere to hide review with uh, a little bit of background 
uh, and a little bit of bio on director Lee Myung-se, and uh, we close it out with uh, the review of Nowhere to Hide. But again, full running times in the show notes if you want to jump ahead, and uh, because we, we pack these shows with segments, so we, we want to make it easy for you. And I think uh, it's a, it's also a conscious thing by, by me in terms of producer that I don't put like the big name movie uh, first or anything. You know, I mean, Chilso and Manso is famous, but if you were to like uh, ask the general Korean cinema fan, do you know of Nowhere to Hide? Yeah. Do you know of Chilso and Manso? No. But that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. We're here to we're here to illuminate the subject, if you will. So let's go into it. Chilso and Manso. And uh, I'm I'm picking up. Um, I'm not picking up Korean, but I'm picking up like that Korean titles. Uh, I can have a good guess sometimes what the Korean titles are, if you translate them literally. So, Chilsu and Mansu, uh, the Korean title of that is uh, Chilsu and Mansu. Pretty spot. So, I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on, my, on my way to learn Korean. <laughs> uh, but uh, why not keep it simple? It's a nice non-descriptive title that uh, describes the movie very well at the same time. It's about these two characters. And... Uh, Plot from Darcy's Korean film page. It's a nice little summary, a small summary. Uh, after meeting at a small workshop where movie billboards are drawn and painted, Chilsu, played by Park Jung Hon, and Mansu, played by An Sung Ki, eventually team up in a search for temporary work. Yet society gives them few opportunities as uh, economically and personally they struggle to make ends meet. And they, it really is a very unplotted movie in a way, so like um, it's not easy to like do a full one, just do a super basic one, you know. Uh, but uh, having said that, it's a full movie too. It's not a, an endless, aimless movie rather. So, uh, but we'll get into it. This is the directorial debut of Park Kwang Soo, and we'll talk about him uh, in a little bit. And uh, this was not necessarily a hit upon release, Chilsu and Mansu, but is remembered today as a major step towards freedom of expression in South Korean cinema. Uh, director Park would go on to gain status as a role model of socially conscious filmmakers. Uh, actors An Sung Ki and Park Jung Hoon were praised for their performances and easygoing chemistry. I, I love easygoing chemistry in movies. That's uh, where I get really giddy. Uh, and they would team up again for the hit comedy Two Cops in 1993. And I'll stop right there. Have you seen Two Cops? Is it anything to write home about? It's a decent movie. Right on. It's very enjoyable. And they work, like, you know, it, once you've seen them in Chilsu and Mansu, um, and Nowhere to Hide, you'll realize they've got a real chemistry together. Um, same thing in Two Cops, it's a really an entertaining cop movie um, they've been in loads of other stuff together as well, they were in Radio Star together in 2006 which is Lee Unique, um, which is a phenomenal film they literally can kind of seek each other out or filmmakers seek them out like, let's pair you two up together, it's like magic, let's do it again and again and again I think, I think that's pretty much it, you know, I think they're, they're offered it and the idea of working together and they just they seem to get on so well they just keep doing it um, was this the, uh, was Chilsu and Mansu presumably the first time they acted uh, together it was yeah you know and you can tell from from the first five minutes they've just got such a chemistry together they're just friends on screen wouldn't it be amazing if they hated each other's guts <laughs> wouldn't the first? It just... like, like oh my god I'm not doing a film with him again oh well I'll take the money then and then it generates 
such great cinema. <laughs> it's like, how does that work? Wouldn't it? Wouldn't it just? I bet you they're just the best of buddies. Seeing there pouting and like, you know, I'm not, I'm not gonna be on the set and he's on the set. Like, you know, well, you're in the same scene. You have to be on. Okay. Well, you know, maybe, maybe not. I mean, Hansu Cute uh, got an award for his portrayal in Radio Star, and Park Jun Hong got nothing. So maybe, maybe that will have made them fall apart a little bit, and there'll be a bit of animosity building. We'll look forward in the future to see if they, they fight each other on screen. Right yeah, they, they've certainly done so at least once in Nowhere to Hide, and they, but we'll get to that. A little uh, on the movie's background and why it's said uh, to be important. Uh, in 1988, as uh, you all might remember, Seoul held the Summer Olympics, the summer of uh, Ben Johnson, the big old cheater in Seoul, you know, and I only said that because I just recently saw the Ben Johnson documentary that ESPN Films uh, put out. Uh, ben Johnson was a 100-meter uh, runner that got uh, disqualified for uh, for doping two days after he uh, uh, had that amazing world record at the Seoul Olympics. Uh, but uh, go watch that. Uh, that's actually very good. Um, they held the Summer Olympics, and South Korea was going through, polit- through political and social change at this time. There was massive street protests against the military government on behalf of workers' rights. Uh, something was it was kind of hitting its fever pitch around this time. Uh, in cinema, however, this reality wasn't being portrayed as such, as government censors were seemingly impossible to get through uh, as if you wanted to do social commentary or criticism um, of any kind. Uh, would, would you say that's fair, Paul, that it was super strict and you know, you, you're better off making regular entertainment that doesn't at all flirt with reality or criticism? Pretty much. I mean, the, the, things were so strict that, you know, people that wrote books were being put in jail just for the things they said in the books that were non-political or anti-governmental, etc., etc. Um, you just, you took your life in your hands if you said anything about the government whatsoever or anything about social issues in films. And Chilsu and Mansu was one of the first films to ever be brave enough to do it and we'll talk about why why certainly why i think it works and why he got away with it um but but it it really opened the door for much more hard-hitting stuff to get through from him and from other people as well so it's hugely important and the thing is that chilsu and mansu is not like very hard-hitting in feel it's not this super dark movie it has you know, you uh, especially if ending, obviously, we'll get to that. It has its darker moments, but it's not this, uh, like, uh, oppressively dark movie throughout or anything. Like, uh, and I think, uh, I think that I think that's one of its strong points, the fact that it is such a sweet film. Indeed. And uh, within Chilson Man, so the interpretation is that it, it, and it's easy to, like, side with that, is that it depicts the hopes, the aspiration and desperation of the young uh, Korean uh, male and females in the 80s during a time when the country was gradually being more, uh, you know, as a democracy, if you will. Uh, so this one, based on that, you know, seemingly got passed during a time of partial relaxation by the government and censors. It was, like, su- super well-timed in that regard, um, uh, would you say that's fair too? That this was just uh, like conceived and brought to the government, so to say, at the right time when things were starting to change. I think I think that's part of it. That's maybe you know fifty percent. It was at just the right time, but there, I think there's more to it than that. I mean, if you look as you go through the scenes, 
for a lot of the film, the whole westernization is huge. You know, it's everywhere. There's Burger King everywhere. When they're standing on the street, there's a Kentucky Fried Chicken in the corner. Um, for a lot of the film, it almost feels really optimistic about where things are going and the way things are going. And I think a lot of I got it through that it it never seems to say anything really nasty until you look underneath and you realize it's it's pulling it apart. And especially at the end, it sort of darkens a bit. But by that stage, you know, the whole way through, Chilsu, he is modern Korea and he's having a whale of a time. He just... He goes on, you know, he makes stuff up, he convinces himself he's going to do this, that, and the other. Never has any money, but he always gets by. Yeah, I'd imagine uh, uh, contemporary audiences would definitely um, have a, a good time with that character and kind of be with him emotionally as well. Um, totally. Which is why, like, when you approach a movie like this, especially for a Westerner like myself, Maybe you yourself, but you know more of Korea. That you wonder is this going to be impactful for a Western audience? And the thing is that Chilsu and Mansu is uh, it is. I mean, it's a uh, it's it's viewed as a bold attempt to mix popular cinema and political cinema, and uh, and uh, it's very approachable. That's a keynote in my review later, and it's well regarded, obviously as and remembered a remembered film of its era. It's also actually based on a short story by Taiwanese author Huang Chunming, uh, something that isn't uh, credited. I mean, the the subtitles on the uh, YouTube version, the legal YouTube version of this, read that it's based on a novel by O Jung Woo. So I think uh, a pseudonym that the filmmakers came up with because they felt like we need to credit someone for the novel. I mean, we're, we're kind of, um, otherwise it would be shameful not to credit that it's based on a novel, but they couldn't uh, credit Huang because uh, his uh, work was uh, banned in South Korea. Yeah, and Park Huang Tzu himself actually said as much um, as we'll, we'll talk. I interviewed him 2012. Um, the years just disappear. Yeah, I interview so many people, uh, I don't know anymore. <laughs> but, you know, he actually made a point of saying that they specifically weren't allowed to credit the real author. They weren't allowed to say that, you know, it was Taiwanese, etc., etc. It was just based on a book by insert a name. Right, because they, 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 were, they clearly... Uh, respected the fact that it was based on a book, so they wanted a credit in there, even if not the real credit. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, uh, Huang Chongming's uh, work is said to often depict the tragic and sometimes humorous lives of ordinary Taiwanese people, but uh, for some reason, I don't know exactly why his uh, work was banned, but um, uh, certainly sensitive to someone in the government, yeah. so there you go. Uh, the story was actually called The Two Painters, and there was uh, an actual Taiwanese adaptation of this uh, made in 1989 of the same name, Two Painters, starring veteran actor Shun Yet, who's in the City on Fire. He's the uh, uh, the superior of Chai Fat, uh, who, who's the only one kind of who knows that Chai Fat is uh, undercover with the triads. And uh, the thing is, when I looked uh, into Two Painters, because I'm a great big fan of Taiwanese cinema, it's made by this uh, wonderful director that I'm blanking on the name now, but I know he made um, a wonderful movie called Papa, Can You Hear Me Sing, uh, The Third Bridge, uh, some great co comedies like Spooky Cookies. Not Spooky Cookies, but Spooky Cookies and Can't Stop the War. Uh, often work with this actor Shun Yut. 
so uh, really looking forward to see if two painters is out there. So um, I, I reckon it'd be uh, it'll be good. Uh, something uh, something I'd like to cover in writing on my own site. Uh, so on director Park Kwang Su, who you've met, Paul. So um, hopefully I'm doing him justice as I say. Uh, talk of his uh, bio. Uh, born in 1955, stu- studied fine arts at the Seoul National University, and uh, when graduating, uh, founded and led the Seoul Film Group. That's also referred to in other places at, as uh, the Seoul Film Collective, and it consisted of himself and graduates of the university. And he uh, was really dedicated to renewing Korean film culture and, and culture and was closely tied to the student protest uh, mov- uh, movement as well, uh, like we see partly in Chilso and Mansu, and it seemed to like be there to speak out for independence in film and against uh, the military dictatorship, uh, essentially. And uh, that is like double confirmed when you talk of movies that they produced, like they produced this movie called That Summer in 1984, which focused on laborers from rural areas working in Seoul, and also a movie called Suri Se from the same year, 84, which touched upon agricultural issues in southwestern Korea. And that's two of the works that the Seoul Film Collective uh, produced. Uh, and they also grew, the group also helped to establish uh, the Busan International uh, Film Festival, uh, which has now grown in size and importance. Surely, I mean, Rufus was over there a few years ago. So, I mean, it's uh, it's a yearly festival, I assume. Yeah, yeah, and p- probably in terms of the cinema that I write about, the most important film festival there is. Full stop. Um, is it a big like uh, festival or with both? Like mainstream movies and small movies, uh, or, or 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 does it have a specific focus? Um, no, pretty much mainstream. They, they've got different sections. They've got mainstream. They've got a digital project. They've got a short section, and they're all big sections. I mean, um, th- through the Korean Film Council, a lot of the things I watch are through the the Kobe's online screen, and which gives me sort of access to stuff that has been on at Busan that I haven't had a, been able to see. Um, and the amount of stuff on there, you, you couldn't get through it. And it's all from, at the minute, last year. And you just think, wow, just how big that festival is. Um, international, you know, there's, there's, there's US movies, there's Vietnamese movies, there's Taiwan movies, there's Korean movies. It's massive. Um, and as I say, from my point of view, it's the most important film festival there is and started uh, from such a uh, valid like uh, place in terms of the train train of thoughts of these uh, filmmakers and students if you will so it's amazing it's grown into i mean i'm sure its image now isn't betraying its old image or anything i think uh, I'm, I'm hoping like the likes of park is uh, proud of the fact that uh, you know we have started it and it's uh, thriving still uh, it's uh, it's there to expose like movies of uh, big and small stature. I think so, and certainly the number of tiny, tiny little short films that really make a name for themselves from Busan, it makes it all worthwhile. You know, some of the best things I've seen over the last year have been little 15-minute shorts by independent filmmakers that have never made anything in their life before, made it on a shoestring, and they're astonishing films. Um, tiny little thing called Sprout 
a thing I, I watched the other night, um, Exit Killers in the Prison, which sounds a horrible title, but it's the <laughs> most, it's just astonishing. I, I, it's about suicide, and it's one of the funniest films I've seen <laughs> in <laughs> years. I'm in, I'm in. Astonishing movie. Um, so just from from those little things alone, um, Park Kwang Soo should be deeply, deeply proud of himself, and it's part of why I rate him so much as a director, aside from the work that he's done, which we'll we'll talk about, but him setting up the Busan Film Festival, that whole thing is his legacy, full stop. Indeed. Uh, so we'll return to that. Obviously, we'll continue with Bio here. He studied uh, film abroad in uh, France, uh, subsequently, I think, uh, after his uh, university days, if I, my bio is right. Uh, but when he returned to Korea, he started working, as you normally do, as an assistant director to two directors, uh, such as Lee Chang-ho, uh, but eventually debuted as main director with Chil Su and Man Su in 1988, that we're covering for this episode. He was the first Korean filmmaker reportedly to form his own production company, and again, is considered a leader of this particular new Korean cinema movement, uh, getting both critical praise in Korea as well as abroad. Uh, the, this, what, what's called here the second film policy apparently made it easier for independent producers like Park to, to enter the Korean film industry, you know, full stop, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, going back a little to his, uh, like, um, his, uh, uh, like, view on uh, what movies to produce or what's important to produce. So rather than trying to fill the quotas to produce like mediocre Korean films. Park and other independent film producers were able to collaborate on quality films that pushed for social change, as we as we um, talked of a little while ago. And without these policy changes, the the advantage, if you will, uh, Park Kwang Soo would probably not be been able to make such films as Chil Soo and Man Soo and uh, even produce like uh, the prior movies in in the eighties, if you will. Um, and it's uh, all like a catalyst for this new wave of Korean cinema, Chil Soo and Man Soo and Park Kwang Soo himself. And uh, I found a quote uh, about him that I think uh, summarizes things uh, quite well. Obviously, you, you get a chance to um, bring your personal viewpoint as well, Paul. But, quote, while all of Park's movies are firmly rooted in the political history of his country, he belongs to a group of international filmmakers whose work transcends their specific political situations to address with great artistry more universal issues of human freedom, end quote. And that's why a movie like Chilsu and Mansu is approachable. So there you go. Uh, but really, Paul, uh, the floor is yours. Personal, like, bring, bring some like personal notes on why, again, Park Kwang Soo is such a key figure for, like, for you and in general. And uh, you also have a story about meeting and interviewing the man. So, um, so uh, the floor is yours, buddy. Before I go any further, nice quote you chose, by the way. I mean, for heaven's sake, I, I should have looked up where I got it from. So, uh, part, I mean, I, I, I didn't steal the quote. It's not mine. <laughs> but I probably got it from Wikipedia, and uh, I didn't look at the source. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a great quote. So I'll, uh... it's, it's nice, and it, it does sum him up. I mean, uh, he's one of those directors, usually, you know what it's like. You, you either look at a director because of the importance he's had to the industry or you really like his films and Park Hwang Soo somewhere in the middle for me, you know, he, he helped form Busan, he really pushed workers' rights in films um, some of his films are, are deeply important 
from my point of view, Chilsu and Manzu is easily my favourite, easily, mm-hmm. because it is such a a sweet film, as we've already said. Um, Black Republic, he did. A Single Spark, he did. They're hugely important. In fact, in A Single Spark, he actually... It's about a, a, a young worker who was standing up for workers' rights who set himself on fire, true story. And Park Wan Su actually tried to do it with CGI, it didn't work, so he set the actor alight to get the scene that oh, he You can wanted. just go to Hong Kong or Taiwan to find a mad stuntman for that. But, yeah, uh, wow! Um, so, you know, I mean, they're, they're phenomenal films. They are mostly heavy, and once you get into them, that's great, but if you're, if you're going to go towards these sort of things, Chilsu and Mansu is where to start. Um, on the other side of it, Park Wan Su also did the Rising, which is one of the most abysmal, boring films I've ever seen in my life. Historical, um, and it's it's essentially a compendium of this happened then, this happened then, and there's no character empathy whatsoever. And it, going back to Chilsu and Mansu, why it hit me so much because you cannot help but really feel for both those characters, really empathise with them. Um, so, yeah, he's really important. Um, I met him as part of the Year of Twelve Directors at the Korean Cultural Centre in London. And funny thing is, after all his important work, the film they were screening was his list from 2007 called Meet Mr. Daddy, which is... It sounds like it could star, you know, come from the 80s and star a wrestler or something. Like starring Hulk Hogan. <laughs> you know, you, you pretty much... some it up, um, completely unnoteworthy, amusing enough little piece of entertainment. Um, why they chose that, apart from the fact that it was his most re- recent film, I don't know. Uh, when I spoke to him, I sort of asked him about all his, his big stuff and sort of said, you know, well, what's this one, Meet Mr. Daddy? And he just sort of said, well... A man, a man's got to eat, buddy. <laughs> yeah, he sort, of, he sort of said, we've sort of said everything there is to say about problems in, in Korea with workforce, with, you know, all the protesting, etc., etc. It's all been done. Other people are doing it. Um, so I just made a film that was nice. And to me, that was the sad thing I've ever heard. You know that that someone that was that folk sort of just making a nice film to make a film, and the last thing he said in the interview, I asked him what he was heading towards, and he said, "I, you know, don't don't really know. I'll find something." And you just think, "Wow, the way things change." Mm. Maybe maybe he shouldn't pursue. Maybe he's done his thing. Is in film like uh, his expression is done, and uh, maybe you know, maybe should retire for his own sake. But maybe that's uh, a hard world to let go of at the same time. So, well, was this like a one-on-one interview or like a group session? Uh, so how, how like in depth could you go with him? This was one of the the group ones, and I I've a, I don't have an issue with a group one, but it's an awful lot harder to build rapport because you don't get to ask as much stuff, but thankfully there were only what, four of us there so, and you know, I drink a lot of coffee, I get ranty, so I sort of take over, um, so I got a fair... Take this, Mark! Somebody else asks a question and you jump back in, um, so I, I, I got a fair 
fair amount of what I wanted to ask um, in terms of subjects and whatever. So one of the better group ones, I obviously would have preferred it to be individual, but that's just just the way it is. Um, but you know, it's certainly worth a, a read, and he's an incredibly interesting guy, and I hope he finds whatever it is he's looking for to focus on and make movies like he used to make. Those um, so um, film collective movies are those um, um, st- uh, available movies or uh, that summer and uh, series uh, or what's the status on uh, on those movies? Pretty much the, the the big really important films he made are available if you can find them. Yeah, yeah, I, I, because I, uh, yeah, th- those dates of 1984 means he didn't direct those, but he was part of like uh, the collective and making sure they were made and what have you. But uh, they, they're not like um, uh, buried movies for all eternity. Uh, they're, they're, may, may, maybe some of them from the film collective is even on the Kofa channel. They may well be. I should really have looked at it. It didn't occur to me, but um, I would imagine so. And I know for a fact Black Republic's on there. Berlin reports on there. Um, I think the single sparks on there as well. Um, and, and in terms of the things he's directed, you know, there are available retrospectives of you know four, five, six, ten of his works. So um, it's all doable. And I think you know a lot of his stuffs on Koffer. I'm not sure if the stuff he was involved with the, with the collectives on there, but you know, worth a look to see if it is. Indeed, it's a treasure trove and discovery going to the Kova channel. We'll discuss, um, uh, we'll, we'll mention it a little bit later in the review. Hey, this is Rufus, and unfortunately I couldn't be here to record due to my rather, uh, I should say, hectic schedule at the moment with the New York Asian Film Festival. Uh, but I can announce something actually related to this episode. Uh, we're bringing Park Joon-hoon in to debut his first film as a director, which is Top Star, uh, and we're awarding him with our new award, the kind of strangely named Celebrity Award, uh, which was created to celebrate people who transition from one type of art to another. Uh, here it's uh, obviously a great actor who has obviously paid attention to <laughs> directors in his career and produced a really great film debut that follows uh, the rise and fall and issues surrounding uh, a Korean actor's career. Uh, and just I, I just finished listening to the episode and I... I I guess what can I say about these two films and directors that you guys haven't already? Uh, not much. It sounds like I missed a really great recording session. Uh, so I guess we'll start with Park Kwang Soo, uh, and Chul Soo Mansu. Uh, and Park Kwang Soo obviously has talked about as part and sometimes credited as the godfather of, uh, the Korean New Wave. Uh, and, you know, with part of this group of filmmakers that started really their careers in the 80s, uh, which includes uh, Lee Myung-sae, who's uh, nowhere to hide, is also in this uh, in this episode, but also people like Jang Sung-woo, um, and, you know, even Lee Chang-dong, uh, who started working with Park Kwang-soo, which I'll talk about in a second. Yeah, and Jang Sung-woo and Park Kwang-soo actually were part of the uh, Seoul Film Collective or Seoul Cinema Collective or Seoul whatever, however people wanted to translate collective. And it's basically a bunch of uh, graduates from Seoul National University uh, who just formed a collective in the 80s and made some short films, uh, none of which I've seen. Uh, uh, I don't know if they're available. Uh, I wish they would be available. 
And like you guys have already talked about, Park, you know, he's a very political filmmaker. Uh, and I just want to say that watching Chilsoon Monsu right now, it might seem not so transgressive, but it really came out at a time where Seoul was, uh, hosting and getting ready for the 1988 Olympics. Uh, meanwhile, they were bulldozing poor people's houses down. Uh, and there's a really great documentary on this called Sunkai Dong Olympics, uh, by Kim Dong Won, who's probably one of my favorite documentary filmmakers. Um, he also was responsible for repatriation, which is about long-term unconverted prisoners of war, uh, trying to get repatriated back to North Korea after they were released from jail. I mean, these are people that were some of the longest held, uh, prisoners of conscience, uh, in the world, um, and he lived with them for seven years, and it's a fantastic documentary. There were also massive social political changes happening. Uh, Rote Wu had just come into power and had sparked massive pro-democracy protests because uh, it was seen as Chun Duhuan just handing him over the presidency, which essentially he did, and Rote Wu and Chun Duhuan were, you know, partners in the military and had worked together during Chun Tuan's uh, dictatorship. Um, but there's also a relaxing of censorship and changes in film laws and how the quota system worked that allowed more independent films to have equal footing in theaters. Uh, and this really allowed Park and his film friends to sort of make these political films and have them be part of this uh, new cinematic landscape that was forming in Seoul. Uh, and, and this is sort of at the same time where you're like, so you have relaxing censorship, you have this massive pro-democracy movement, which, you know, ended in, well, not ended, but, you know, 1993, you finally saw Kim Jong-san, uh, elected as the first civilian president in 30 years, uh, and then he promptly investigated and arrested Chun Doo-won and Rote Wu for corruption and treason and, uh, their, their roles in the Kwangju massacre. Um, so really this, this sort of new wave, these, this late eighties, early nineties corresponded to this, this rapid change. Uh, uh, Korea had also just saw, seen a massive industrialization and, uh, expanding of an upper middle class and upper class. Uh, and Chilsu Amansu was really this shot across the bow. You know, and Park Kong Soo, of course, is known for his political filmmaking. You know, like we've already talked about, Star to Starry Island, Black Republic, and actually my favorite, uh, A Single Spark, which is, as Paul, I think, mentioned about Chun Tae-il, who's the uh, activist who self-immolated to protest labor conditions in garment factories. Um, and actually, Yi Chang-dong, who uh, was the screenwriter for... A single spark and actually had started his filmmaking career because he was i think a painter or or no he was a novelist uh before this but he had actually started his screenwriting career with uh park Kwang su's to a starry island so let's talk chilsu and mansu our more uh, in-depth review of the wheel and uh, first of all we've let count the cat out of the bag in terms of that we like the film but still paul be creative and give us a, a very small like or dislike of the movie despite. So what do you think of Chilsu and Mansu? I love Chilsu and Mansu. My favorite Park Kwang Su film simply because if you want to look deep into it, you you can read a lot about Korean 
culture and about Korean ills through the 80s, as we've already talked. But if you actually just want to sit back and enjoy it as a fun film with really likable characters, you can't go wrong. You follow them willingly through every Burger King, through every street. Um, wonderful film. I adore it. Mm, yeah, I agree. I mean, I know nothing going into it, and that, 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 that's always a blessing nowadays to go into something with a blank slate, you know, in this, uh, in this day where where hype and uh, and uh, media, like bombardment, if you will, uh, really you know, makes you know more of the movie than you want sometimes. Chills with Manso was a blank slate for me, and I, I felt like I was consuming a really basic human story with depth comedy and it's skillfully a movie that skillfully mixes both and there's and it has this movie language where watching actors talk and interact is the best thing ever you know uh, you know just point the camera to easy going actors and there you go it's one of the key uh key uh points for me and uh i mean it's uh it's also great to go in with it uh, into it with a blank slate because uh, in terms of plotting it's not super apparent where it is going ever really i mean it surprises overall so the this poses a challenge to like the viewer and the filmmaker certainly needs to live up to the chal- this challenge as well like because partly it feels kind of unplotted like uh, uh, these guys um, hang out and do stuff, and it's like uh, follow them, following them daily, kind of. You know, you know. What I mean, it's one of those unplotted pieces that uh, um, I was uh, that has no familiar template, at least to me. You know, uh, you you can't like one two minutes in go aha Korean drama template one a. You know, yeah, totally, no, it's not totally. it's not that. So I mean, and, and I never. Uh, it, or rather, it took me only a few minutes to realize that uh, the confidence of Director Park is uh, is there immediately. I mean, it's quite immersive, and it starts with uh, how another movie we covered on this uh, show ends uh, during the uh, civil defense drill, where the air raids yeah. go and they have to clear the streets and what have you. Uh, and uh, what follows is a charming little uh, sequence in an arcade hall. So, uh, what do you think? Do, do, do you think Park hooks immediately because? Uh, Chilsu is uh, one of these characters that he, he comes off as a bit of a creep initially. I don't know. He didn't strike me really as a creep. I I, I see what you mean, but he just I follows just... her like girl. <laughs> then she sits she sits she sits down to play outrun, and he stares stands there and stares at her and takes over her playing. Like I thought, I was like, oh, what is the? I, I would never do that. <laughs> No, no, and neither would I, I have to admit. But, you know, I think he hits her the way he's meant to hit us. You know, she when he, he pushes her off that arcade machine, she goes away. She goes off to the corner in a huff, but she's back within a couple of minutes, and you see her start to smile. And he's just, yeah, you know, he just, he's, he's got no shame. He's got no problems with anything at all he's got no plan which i think fits with the film itself it feels yeah. like you are actually following chilsu because he's just making stuff up as he goes along there, 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 there is a fantasy theme uh, also injected here that i actually quite love because when he takes over playing outrun uh paul kwangsu actually does a very minor fantasy sequence where chilsu imagines uh, driving uh, with 
this girl that he's just met, uh, you know, in a, in a convertible and what have you. So it's uh, it's part of a fantasy theme that runs through the film because he he concocts these uh, big uh, stories uh, of uh, where he's going and uh, how great of a time he's having and he's going to have. I, I just, I mean, just on that, I love the fact that you know he imagines when he's playing the arcade game in the red car, he imagines he's in a red car with her. And of course, it cuts back to present day and the car crashes and you just think that's just chill Sue's life you know it's just it's always gonna go and 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 the, but the movie doesn't signal that like okay now i know where this character is going no you realize that that Not as you go along rather i mean on a very very separate note when i i watched this yesterday the day before um for the first time in years and when i looked at the character of gina you know the girl mm-hmm. um Part of me thought, I, I know her from somewhere. You know that feeling where you think, I've seen her somewhere before. And she's got you, that you look. You have that bit. movie with that guy who was in that other movie last year. That <laughs> yeah. And, and just today, I was doing a little bit of research. And she's, you know, she's been in oceans of huge films. I mean, she's a really big name. And it only occurred to me when I looked and I thought, I, I'm sure I've seen her somewhere before. Um, you know, she, she was in... Five Senses of Eros, Herb, Jealousy's my middle name, massive star. So you should be, you should be ashamed of yourself, Paul. That's what I, you're saying, I, essentially. I really, really should. You know, <laughs> is she from a '50s film? You know, slap me on the back of the head. But you know, it does say that apart from the two leads, who it was their start of their career, it was the start of hers, and hers has just been as big as theirs, and she's just not as well known, not as well known to me anyway, um, but that's just a little aside, um, she's wonderful in it as well, I think she's phenomenal. Uh, by the way, I think I'm going to win the creep argument by saying this, like in the Burger King joint, after he sketches her, because uh, Chilso is a talented artist, he says like really casually, like next time I'll sketch you nude. Creepy. <laughs> yeah, fair point, but he does hold to it and does sketch her nude. And by, the time, by the time she looks at, well, I won't give it away, but by the time she looks at the picture, he's he's sorted it out. So, um, yeah, okay, he's, he's creepy, but he's 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 nice, creepy. You you begin to like him, obviously, and uh, uh, talk a little bit about your personal like. Um, if you can relate to what I'm saying, that uh, watching actors just talk and be on screen is the best thing ever. Uh, what do you? Is that something you think about in cinema uh, when it does occur that this is mind blowing to just watch uh, natural people being natural together? Because in Chilsu and Mansu, if you weren't a fan of that like notion before, at least you will be after watching Chilsu and Mansu because as soon as uh, Park and uh, Anson Key scene start, you you're there. Or what do you think in general of this? Uh, notion. I, I totally, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, some Korean cinema, some independent stuff is really big on the nothing happens thing and the whole beauty of a film can be held with just a little conversation between characters that, that hold you stand. Um, it's a huge thing for me. There's a, there's a film for a I think it was 2006, seven, called This Charming Girl. And it is the girl's day-to-day life. She does, she does nothing. She finds a cat, she loses a cat. That's essentially it. And it's one of my favorite films because 
the conversations between her and Wan Jun Min are just they grip you. They're they're real life and Chelsea and Mansu's got that. So whether we know what's going on. I'm glad we don't know what's going on. I'm glad it's not predictable. But even if nothing happened at the end, I'd still have enjoyed the entire journey because those interactions, those those dialogues are perfect. You feel for every character. You you want to know their stories. Their first interactions is like Chilsa really forcing himself into Mansu's life essentially like uh, in one scene he just comes into his life and he lies down on the floor and goes to sleep essentially like I live here now and deal with it kind of so uh, I mean but but it doesn't take long for them to kind of uh, you know become a natural part of uh, each other's lives you know okay well let's let's do this you know let's find work together because they 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 both uh, obviously are accomplished at uh, doing the billboard stuff obviously mansu has uh, uh, skills in that as well uh, and and you're right also uh, uh, chilsu is a charming character as you go along because the way he believes in his, himself is not necessarily akin to super cocky behavior either um, it's just this guy who do he, he'll he'll take a chance on uh, on uh, his uh, on anything, including like uh, his wooing, you know, he uh, tries to woo the girl with uh, English language, and he tries to do like cheesy stuff, like and, and I say cheesy, it sounds like I have a black heart, but uh, like he, he he talks of like this carnation reminds me of a story, <laughs> and tries to like be super poetic and like, <laughs> and he he just feels his way, you know, feels his way around, and like uh, this might work, this might not work, well, you know. I'm 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 a cool I'm a cool guy. I can I I I can probably get this working somehow, you know. And he pretty much gets away with every one of the notions he has by just giving that sort of little ambitious smile at the end. And it just it works. It works. Yeah, and, and all that notion of like um, again uh, going back to just actors talking. I mean, I I was reminded of. Uh, a movie I loved on that note, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's very first movie called Hard Eight, the director of Boogie Nights and There Will Be Blood. And uh, he talked a lot about the fact that, uh, you know, shooting those opening scenes in the coffee house with John C. Riley and uh, Philip Baker Hall, um, and it's a side shot of them two in the same frame or what have you, that's just just what he wanted because he knew they were strong enough. To carry yeah. that, carry that. It was so, and it is so amazing. I, when thinking of that notion, I'm always reminded of the hard eight, actually, uh, and and that opening scene in the coffee house, just just people talking, drinking coffee, and uh, they, they could have done that for 90 minutes in that movie for all I care, and it would have been amazing. Exactly, exactly. It's 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 like watching life, and that's exactly what we do. When we're and you get so effing jealous as well because I want to be that good of a filmmaker, but it's not that easy to just turn on no. turn on the camera. Park probably needed to rehearse his actors a lot, and 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 if he couldn't see chemistry, then he wouldn't have put those two on screen in their various interactions together and uh, as the story develops. So that's you know obviously on Park if it didn't work, and uh, that yeah. uh, really. Distant, uh, distant camera. You know, a lot of times it isn't uh, moving, but it's not one of those boring art films either, where the lack of movement is supposed to mean something. Yeah. You know, someone uh, lighting a cigarette and blowing it out in slow motion. Meaning, you know, it's not that. It's just 
straightforward and um, jealousy as well on my behalf at the same time. Like, I want to be that good, but I am, I'm not. <laughs> I would rather talk to people being that good because they deserve to be highlighted, goddammit. Totally. Um, Chills obviously hints on the fact that he's I'm moving to America soon, and uh, you realize that he, he's so uh, his frequency is so high in terms of his uh, great stories and his great life that's looming that you, you are picking up on the fact that something is not quite right here. It seems a little bit fake, a little bit of an act, and this guy has already uh, put on a bit of an act. So that's park like planting a little bit um, of uh, possibly failed dreams you know possibly like these characters having no ability at all to go anywhere you know it uh, starts that sure little like, tiny tiny little like plant is seeded a darker plant uh, a, a seed is uh, uh, planted but it never turns uh, as I said oppressively dark uh, or anything it, it earns its uh, quieter dramatic moments uh, later on yeah. I think that's part of how he got away with putting his politics through without it seeming like he's putting his politics through because if you look at Chilsu's character he's he, if you if you want to read into it he is modern Korea and Mansu's old Korea if you like and if if you want to read underneath the lines look at Chilsu look at everything he does he's full of big talk but Something's not quite right, and it's almost like Park Hwansu's constantly saying, yeah, this modernization, this democracy, this Americanization, it's all really snazzy on the, the surface. It's all great. It's all got a great plans, great dreams, but underneath it all, it's not really quite right. And that sort of leads towards the later part of the story. Yeah, yeah the tales become really big. For him, you know, at one point, I think it was the point where I really realized that he's lying his ass up. Now, he says to uh, Manzo in one scene, I, I, I talked to my girlfriend, she wants to drop out of school and live with me now. Yeah. And you, it, it started to become transparent that that's how uh, he hides his disappointment, I suppose. Uh, his um, possible depression, maybe, you know, you, you theorize at that point. Uh, but it is also a very funny movie in terms of their interaction. At one point, uh, in a classic kind of, it would have been a scene out of uh, any country's comedy. Uh, Chilsu needs uh, someone. To, uh, he's going out to a club with his girl, and there's a friend of a girl coming too. So he kind of needs uh, Mansu to help him out, to help him in his wooing ways by playing someone who's he, who he isn't. He's asked to play a French artist. <laughs> so he, he obviously I don't know whose ideas it was but uh, they're like big super like uh, dedicated detailed planning was that a beret and smoke a pipe a cigarette, and, uh, yeah. a cigarette and have like a one or two sentence backstory and that starts to fail as soon as they start asking questions obviously <laughs> like what do you like to paint uh, well, <laughs> portraits <laughs> and then laugh it off <laughs> And uh, it, it's, a, it's a classic, it, it's not a very loud comedy scene or anything, but in the club, like, I, I love that um, they're kind of, it's just typical of dudes who think they're so goddamn smart, and I am a dude, totally is. that totally uh, they, is. Want no, they want no thing, and those girls probably saw through that uh, immediately. But, uh, it does have to be said, though, those girls are at that club dancing to Rick Astley. Mm-hmm. So, you know, That's they're not why, really... A... I can say this already. That's why Rick, uh, Rick Astley was played at the top of the show as intro music. 
<laughs> you know, we're not Rick rolling you here. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm literally going to play Rick Astley at the beginning of the show. Uh, and, and that makes the point, you know, or that, that brings out the point. Uh, there's actually quite a lot of modern music in here. And um, I can't, I don't think Korea is Hong Kong in that regard. This reeks more of they didn't steal it, but rather licensed uh, the usage of um, yeah. uh, popular late 80s music. I think this Modern Talking possibly is on the soundtrack as well, or where synth pop sounded eerily similar to Modern Talking, but the big one is the Rick Astley hits, uh, hits and then we're going to uh, so, but but uh, that's probably true, right? That they paid uh, they paid to have the music in the film, yeah. Pretty much, and they also using Burger King and whatever as, and it, it it does have to be said it's necessary to say, hey, look, Americanism, but it does have to be said there's so much product placement in there that that sort of paid for whatever you want to talk about. Sure. Um, so it sort of all worked. Perfectly, and it, it goes back to the same thing. Park Wang Su, maybe his first film as a director, but he knew what he was doing. He knew how to get what he wanted. Indeed. And another key point also, if you don't see anything in that, uh, that uh, we have Burger King present in many scenes, that that's Americanism or not, you don't need to necessarily see that because why it's so approachable as well is the fact that uh, Park doesn't even makes a point that the characters don't want to associate themselves with the current protests because they're in their own personal dramas, you know, around the point where we won't spoil a lot, but I'll say this, uh, one of the characters passport is denied and that's kind of heartbreaking and devastating news. And at one point I think that character turns off the TV essentially like, I don't want to deal with that. You know, I got too much crap to deal with on my own. So that makes it approachable. And I love that point that this is what's going on, but they're not in the middle of it. Chilso and Manso are rarely in the middle of it until essentially the end. Yeah. Uh, so I, I love that. You don't need to be clued into the timeline, but you get it. Like, have a second or two of the fact that there are student protests or workers' rights uh, protests on the TV, and you have enough of context there. You don't need to go to the history books to look up the context and then return to the movie, you know. Uh, and, and that's the sign of a strong, uh, strong movie. So uh, this, I won't talk too much more because, you know, suffice to say the second half is, um, or lost third maybe, is more of like reality, you know, the the characters' problems, uh, respective problems coming to the surface. And uh, and it's equally, you know, great to follow it. I mean, the charm and the fun is gone, but we don't get a melodrama at all here. We get a very low-key but still rich on substance drama here where each respective character's um, you know, past struggles either through uh, either due to the parents or due to, um, again, uh, having uh, certain things denied by the government uh, comes to the surface and uh, it's uh, it becomes really affecting. It's not a tear-jerking but it comes, becomes really affecting because you've liked the characters before you certainly don't like seeing them um, being devastated by, uh, by the various uh, events and news that they receive. Yeah. Um, so I mean, um, yeah, it's a controlled rage and sadness. Uh, kind of com- these two combined, the characters combined, you know, as uh, Park Kwang Soo peels the layers away, you know, and uh, it it does come out at the end of uh, at the end of the movie. We won't spoil it, other than the fact that it's set on a um, uh, on the top of a, a giant billboard for, I believe. Um, a whiskey brand or or yeah. American beverage brand of some sort. It's not Coca Cola or anything, but uh, 
so, I mean, that, that's probably the scene where I got the Americanism more clearly, that they're, they're working on this big uh, big billboard and the events that do occur. Um, yeah, yeah, you realize that there is something there to be said. But, um, yeah, totally. Uh, you know, on a, uh, one more little sideline, that big billboard, they had to paint it as a complete fake thing because they'd wanted to originally use a proper billboard with a proper lady advertising whiskey and the government wouldn't allow it because women weren't allowed to be in advertising at that time. So a so, so fake one was okay with um, in that regard because <laughs> I mean it's a pretty raunchy one apparently. Uh... Well it pretty much is, you know, especially when you can see what you can see but supposedly as long as it's only painted and it's not real um, they can get away with it. Which is why he can get away, I guess, with sketching, you know, Gina nude earlier on. You do get a glimpse of the sketch made. Yeah. Um, because, again, it's just a sketch. It's a, they must have shot uh, this um, actually at the top of some building. It looks like it, the majority of the yeah. finale, at least. Uh, uh, so I'm sure those are not easy environments to necessarily shoot in, you know, in control and what have you. But... Uh, you know, we're doing it for real and uh, getting the real effect across there. There's a wonderful mix during the ending, uh, that's the only thing I can spoil, of uh, it being hilarious because of misunderstandings. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a running joke in the film that uh, people up there, you know, painted the billboards or whatever, you can't hear the people on the ground shouting up to them and vice versa. So there's your misunderstandings. That, and I love that comedy. It's very low-key, but they're wonderfully droll and quirky and what have you. So um, um, that park is very good at, too. Uh, but also tra- transferring to when serious, uh, seriousness is uh, the name of the game as, uh, as the movie runs towards its end. Yeah. Um, so really, the last note I have, and then you can say whatever you like is <laughs> I mean on the theme of like this being a very raunchy movie in one scene Chilso literally looks like he's masturbating <laughs> yeah he does he won't he won't take those hands out of his pants will he yeah, it's not like is he I think he is you know and yeah, the yeah. context is that by this point he's kind of, he's kind of down and uh, the phone rings and he's living with Mansu at this point and he can't get up and answer the phone he tries to pick it up with his foot and he's like oh, I'm not picking that up and Mansu runs out he's been in the shower so he's got shampoo in his hair and uh, Chilsu at this point uh, because he doesn't need to answer the phone puts his uh, hand into his pants again and does the motion he does the effing motion so I mean, I, I, I'm a guy. I know there's, there's a comfort of having your hand, uh, you know, placed somewhere <laughs> around there. But you know, he's literally masturbating in the scene, <laughs> and it doesn't look look it doesn't look pleasurable. It's just out of boredom. He just uh, touches his wiener for a little bit. <laughs> and it's a funny ass scene. I mean, I, I, you don't see it every day. You don't see it every day. So maybe <laughs> certainly not something he got away with there. Like, is he masturbating in that scene? Maybe. <laughs> I'm not gonna tell you. <laughs> Are you going to censor it? No, we can't. Well, it's him, and he yeah, totally was. That's the way to go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I don't know, but uh, okay, uh, I'm, I'm I'm done. I, I love it. It's a very pleasurable film, easy to follow. Short, uh, well, I say short, Korean short. You know what? You all know what that means. Uh, and it's uh, for all the reasons we've stated, it's a highly recommended film. That's all I'm going to say. The floor is yours, Paul. What else do you want to say? Very little. Um, it's a great film because it's got a message if you want to read it. 
if you want to enjoy it, you just enjoy it. It's got happiness. It's got, as you say, sadness at the end, but it's not a tearjerker. It's not a melodrama. It's just a great film. Please watch it. And approachable, I think, is the final key. Totally, totally. And Chilsu Mansu is really... Uh, just this film I came into contact with on DVD, and my first DVD, the first printing of the Korean DVD, had no subtitles. My Korean wasn't that great back then, not that it's really great anymore now, but just watching it, I was struck by just the charisma and and chemistry between An Sung-gi and Park Jung-hoon, uh, and clear why then they were starred in Two Cops and all of these other films and, and Nowhere to Hide. I mean, these guys obviously had this, this you know, they're both phenomenal actors. Uh, An Sung-gi's been acting since he's five years old and, and Kim Ki-young's Ki uh, housemaid. Um, you know, Park Chung-hoon's like in some of my all-time favorite movies. I mean, he's like later in Jang Sung-woo's uh, Lovers of Wubek Remy Province. He's, I mean... He's just a phenomenal, phenomenal actor. Um, and, and it's, it's really a movie about their friendship and this, their friendship and chemistry. I mean, it really carries the movie, which is sort of made of vignettes. I mean, this is not a, this is not a film where there's like a typical filmic structure. I mean, this is really like following these two, uh, men through the changing economy of Korea, and like you see, like globalization with Burger King and all these American brands. Uh, but it's also about like the Minjun class of workers who were really the sort of leaders of democratic movement in Korea, and they have no money, they have no upward mobility, and I mean they have all these dreams and aspirations. But at this point, like up to this point, Korea and sort of the society has suppressed these these aspirations and. Uh, this is really why it's a dangerous film politically, because the, 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 that really shows the way, you know, the way Korea was looking to go and the way Korea stands and arguably probably still is, uh, forces both of these characters to just basically accept their lot in life, deny them their dreams, uh, their, you know, their ties to prostitution and the, the sort of economy and politics of, living near an American base, um, and also, you know, their ties to communism and An sung character, his, the background of being tied to communism was, you know, a life en a life ender, essentially, in Korea. Um, you couldn't get an education, you couldn't get a new job, you know, you were denied a lot of things, and you were, you know, harassed by the police, you were harassed by, uh, Korean CIA. This is the, that, that, how Chilsu Monster shows this marginalization and shows them that these men have dreams and that Korea is not allowing them to pursue them. And then, you know, the ending, which basically sort of speaks to itself as to where Park Hong Su thought Korea was ending is just, I mean, it's brutal. It's, this is a, a really politically charged film and it does so very subtly, but, you know, this was the opening shot of the Korean new wave. You know, and I think you guys have covered, you guys have pretty much covered it, but I, I, you know, highly suggest this, like, seeking out this film. I mean, it's, it's brilliant. If you can watch it for free, then you should watch it. Um, and as for availability, you can watch it for free and legally on the Korean Film Archive YouTube channel with English subtitles. So if you're interested, it's only a few clicks away. 
so and uh, we'll link directly to the movie if you can't find it because I missed looking it up because uh, it's um, if you type in just Chilsu and Mansu on YouTube I couldn't find it but you, you need to uh, put some dashes in there Chil dash su and man dash su so uh, but uh, I'll, uh, I'll I'll link to it directly you should find it that way so there's no uh, excuse if you like it go get it uh, there, it probably was a DVD once but I'm sure that's uh, not available right now I try to look up one uh, used because I couldn't find it on YouTube, and uh, the used uh, price was uh, quite out- outrageous for a DVD. Yeah, yeah. So I opted for the free and legal option instead. You know, shame on me. <laughs> it's what it's there for. Exactly, and, and good quality too, widescreen. So um, uh, there you go. Uh, we are taking a break, and after a break, we uh, jump back to ni- jump back, jump forward for heaven's sake to 1999 and uh, meet the actors again, Park. Jung Hon and Ansun Ki in Nowhere to Hide and uh, that's uh, my first Korean movie and the first of uh, in many regards or in a few regards and we'll talk about after the break so uh, you you um, you probably have some insight in, in, into its uh, UK exposure and there's some fun aspects to speak of when it came to its UK exposure and how they tried to sell Nowhere to Hide so, oh yeah oh boy <laughs> uh, but uh, we'll be right back uh, after the break You're a holiday Such a holiday You're a holiday Such a holiday It's something I think's worthwhile If the puppet Welcome back, and let's talk Nowhere to Hide from 1999. Korean title literally means, according to Paul, there will be no mercy. And we talk privately about that, and I would love for that to mean there will be no mercy. There will be so much style in a merciless way. (laughs) I will launch at you stylistically. There will be no mercy on my behalf, and that will be Lee Mewes' behalf. Maybe it doesn't mean that at all, but uh, in my world, I, I'd like for it to mean that because uh, Lee creates such a personal, like, uh, no rules type of world in this movie anyway, and language, movie language. So why not let it mean that? You know, we, we'll, uh, we'll settle for that. <laughs> you know, we'll cement that it's done right now. There will be no mercy. It's about how stylish the movie is. So there you go. You can quote me on that Wikipedia. But all right, plot from IMDb. Really minimal is the name of the game here, so I think the plot is supposed should be minimal as well. A team of police hunt down a villain. What do you think of that plot, Paul? <laughs> well, you're pretty much there. Yeah. Well, to, to, to add there for a little bit, main cop, played by Park Jong-hoon, and a villain, an assassin, played by Ansun Ki, in a completely, if I'm not missing any dialogue, I think it's a completely dialogue-less performance, dialogue-free performance by um, Ansun Ki. Pretty much, I think he may have he may have a couple of words, but I may have just imagined them. Um, it's pretty much it's dialogue free, and all the stronger for it. Oh yeah, absolutely, it lives up to that. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the movie. It's quoted as uh, you know said to be an action slash art film uh, that simply dazzles, and uh, its style, humor, cinematography, and endless invention combine to make watching it an exhilarating. Experience is the quote from some. 
Uh, and I agree with that uh, quote big time. And, and this was my first Korean movie ever. And uh, to touch a little bit upon its first elsewhere, this was, if my research is, research is correct, the first ever Korean movie to hit DVD in the UK or from this wave of Korean movies anyway. Even more than that, it was the first Korean film to be marketed internationally. And uh, on that first, I mean, I um, I picked up that DVD. I had the Korean DVD previously, but um, I sold it for whatever reason, and I uh, picked up recently the old Tartan Asia Extreme DVD. And uh, it has some very lazy comparisons uh, <laughs> to uh, John Woo. Uh, but uh, do you remember, Paul? I mean, I, I might be putting you on the spot there. Do you remember what the director Lee humorously said he would like to be compared to instead of John Woo? Yes, it is ingrained in my memory for all time. Um, I, I interviewed him again in 2012. It was a nice individual interview. And it, this was one of the first questions I asked because the whole tartan marketing or mismarketing of Korean DVDs has been a bugbear of mine for years. It drives me insane. Um, and this was really the first example of it that are you ready for the next John Woo when no, this is not the next John Woo, sorry, no um, so I asked him about it and as I asked him he bent his head he rubbed his eyes and he just went everybody says John Woo and he made a point of saying he doesn't dislike John Woo but he doesn't want to be compared to him, he wanted to be compared to Jack Tati, Charlie Chaplin Buster Keaton as far as I remember Essentially anybody except for John Woo. Um, and if you want, if you check out the interview, I, I actually listed the names he gave me. I mean, again, as you said, nothing wrong with compared to John Woo, who we love, but uh, you got to compare it correctly. Well, you know? exactly. And, you know, uh, and that's not what Tartan did. You know, on the front it says, I have the DVD right in front of me, a surefire hit with fans of Hardboy. And that's not a review quote. That's uh, Tartan's own own tagline. So. There you go. Um, I mean, they might have picked, sold a few units based on that. Uh, and you're right. Uh, I just saw it. That quote is uh, from Screen International. Is Hollywood ready for the next John Woo? You know, it's just... And I mean, I, I guess it's the first Korean film to be released here on DVD, blah, blah, blah. And, and you, you got to sell it somehow, I suppose. I, I guess. And, and the only thing Asian that anybody in the normal public would have been aware of, I guess, John Woo, but it doesn't give them an excuse, you know? It's that same thing. They mismarket. So the people that are looking for John Woo will go and be disappointed because it's not. And the people that aren't looking for it aren't going to buy it because they'll think, well, if it's like that, I don't want to see it. No. And Tartan, for its entire career, constantly did it constantly mismarketing things to push away people that might be interested in the actual film by comparing it to something that they might not like and pulling in people who wouldn't be interested to my mind they just whoever whoever marketed part and stuff deserve more than i could even say <laughs> I guess I've been lucky because I only own a few of the Asia Extreme DVDs, but I remember 
uh, JSA DVD, Save the Green Planet DVD. wasn't necessarily like um, uh, on the DVD, at least. I don't know how they advertised it, actually. But it didn't seem desperate, uh, because they had, in JSA's case, they had Old Boy to lean on. And in Save the Green Planet's pl- um, case, they didn't have anything to lean on, and they just um, picked that the fact that this is a hilarious movie. They have to pick something, because it is. But it's also, you know, dark and brutal and bloody and hilarious. As you say, as far as Save the Green Planet goes, they they did as as well as they could there. I think they said bonkers as anything. Um, yeah, yeah, that's that's how, well, that'll appeal to the UK UK common man. <laughs> it fits, I guess, but it's one of one of the very few. Um, this constant. Ever since old oh boy, the whole oh oh boy, oh oh boy, oh boy has replaced everything else. And before that, it was oh something Asian. Oh yeah, you know. Um, and a lot of Korean horrors that were released were you know oh look long haired ghost, and it was like come on. I mean, it's the simple way out, and I, I totally understand why they do it. I'm not saying it's good or effective, but uh, that's the idea that pops up, and that's what we're going with. It's it's uh, marketable globally, so we'll, we're going to do the same right away, if you will, uh, of the ring or or hard boiled even uh, so many years after its uh, its release. When this was released in 1999, that's a 1992 movie. Uh, but uh, yeah, but, but Lee has uh, humor about it, as uh, as you quoted. And uh, and uh, let's uh, talk of Lee Lee Myung Se, the director. He was born in 1957 and graduated from the Seoul Institute of the Arts. Uh, also, a late 80s debut director after starting out as an assistant director and he directed his very first movie is a comedy with a fantastic title that I'm in regardless of what it's about and it's called Gagman Um, that grabbed international attention quite quickly apparently he got a quote from noted the British film critic Tony Raines saying it was one of the most unique debut films in the history of filmmaking so that's a quote and a half have you seen Gagman? I have and again one of my favorite Emion Say films. Um, it's very funny. It's very, very, very stylish. And as his career's gone on, the whole style thing that you see in Nowhere to Hide just follows through. That's what he becomes. He's he's style over big story. He his stories are are incredibly simple, and he uses cinematography. And I guess visual excitement to hold you in. And he does it well. There are very few to my mind that could get away with it the way he does. Um, and I would normally be infuriated by a VR choice like that, but nowhere to hide immediately. Like uh, uh, the confidence in that director grew immediately. And uh, you're very right, Lee is acclaimed as, as one of the best stylists and imaginative directors of Korean cinema. And I think Rufus said once that uh, this sort of explains it all, that uh, Lee is a bit of a perfectionist. These shots need to be right. Uh, so I'm <laughs> going to do it for as long as I need to, to get it right according to how I see it, you know. Uh, it doesn't make him like a, a Nazi or anything, but uh, he's, you know, it's not something that you do uh, like uh, with an eye shut, uh, you know, reading the paper with one eye and making a movie with the other, other eye, eye. He needs his all on, you know. And uh, you just you get you get the feeling that he eyes every pixel of every frame to get it exactly the way he wants it. And when it works, it's it's wonderful. There are there are times where 
you said you got rid of your nowhere to hide DVD. He also did a film called Duelist, uh, two thousand and four or five, um, and it's it deeply annoyed me, and I got rid of it. And then a couple of years later, thought I, I really need to own that, and I went and bought it again and watched it again. It annoyed me as much the second time as <laughs> it. So I've still got it, but well, was it like because it was like no, that, that 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 style wasn't compelling in the in the case of that one? Was, it was just it. There, there are things in, in Nowhere to Hide that, to my mind, really work. And he does the same thing in The Duelist, and it doesn't. There's one, I know we're going to talk about it more, but there's one scene where he's chasing a guy called Meathead in Nowhere to Hide. Yeah. And as they're fighting, it goes from sort of 80s Western pop into noir music. And then as they're fighting, it turns into this little, almost like a tango where yes. they're dancing together. And I have to say, I giggled when I watched it, re-watched it, because it just works. In The Duelist, the main female character, Ha Jing Wong, goes after one of the bad guys, and they're fighting sword on sword. And he tries a similar thing. He speeds it up and puts almost silent movie music behind it. Mm-hmm. But the film itself is so much darker, much much more straight-laced, I guess. And it just feels so jarring. And I was like, what are you taking the piss? And I, it was that little scene Baby! where they're... <laughs> Shouting up the they're, screen. <laughs> yeah, it really was. And I, I did. I went and, I went and sold my DVD um, because of that. And that's the thing that really annoys me. Even a director you love... Uh, you can be honest about, uh, you know, from movie to movie on an individual movie basis. Uh, that's not a bad thing. Yeah, You're totally. not damning his entire filmography just because of one movie, if you will. No, very much. And the rest of The Duelist is utterly beautiful, um, visually stunning. Um, and in hindsight, you know, watch it, um, but just be annoyed at that little scene because it deserves it. Anyway, back to Nowhere to Hide. Back to Nowhere to Hide, and back to Liam Yunxie. He was described by SoulSection.com in the following way. It is rare to find a director so absorbed in pursuing the fundamental question, what is the film? Aspiring to be a craftsman rather than an auteur, Lee could be called a sophisticated alchemist who can engrave images. Unlike most new wave directors who speculated more on storyline and style to talk about reality, Lee engrossed himself in finding out the identity of the film as a cinematist. It sounds highfalutin, if you will, but uh, it makes sense. It kind of makes sense. He, he's, uh, he's not in pursuit of story necessarily. He's in pursuit of, uh, uh, you know, engraving other things into us. And uh, in the case of Nowhere to Hide, it's the only movie I've seen of his. It that that uh, like um, mission statement uh, very much works. Yeah. yeah, he's not the most frequent director. Um, since 1989, he, Lee has, uh, at the time of recording, made nine films as director, and if my research is correct, is planning a tenth, a comic adaptation called Antel. Uh, do you know anything if this is uh, on ongoing, even made by this point? Um, as far as I know, it's in pre-production. Um, like you say, it's a take on a, a. I don't know if it's Japanese or Taiwanese, but. Um, comic about female revenge, supposedly. Um, it's slated as 2013. It certainly hasn't been released, so I'm assuming it's still in process. I haven't heard that it's been ditched as yet. Mm-hmm. Um, he did do a film in 2010 called The Days of Our Youth, 
um, which sort of just went almost unnoticed. Um, before that was 2007 with M, um, which, again, a huge amount of style and a storyline that's as hard to grasp as you could possibly imagine. In, in a frustrating way or, therefore, in the case of M? An interesting way. It's, uh, it's certainly watchable, but I, I remember seeing it and going onto Twitter or Facebook something afterwards and going, not quite sure what that was about. And I had loads of comments from, you know, Martin at New Korea Cinema going, thank God somebody else didn't have a clue what was going on. <laughs> no, no idea. Um, I actually asked him about it, Im Young said, when I interviewed him. And uh, he just, that quote you just gave, the, you know, he asked what his film. It's exactly what Im Young say said. He just said, you know, what is film? You've asked what is M? I don't know. And you just think, okay. Um, so, you know, it's he's he's very much about visual stories that go wherever the need take him. No, 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 not in a Lynchian way or anything. I mean, uh, just speaking those words, you remind yourself of uh, David Lynch, and obviously, uh, depending on the movie, he uh, that's. You know, it's uh, to me, it's a visual storytelling, a very like <laughs> memorable one. But in terms of uh, what it means, uh, you can draw your conclusions, but you're often wrong. I mean, uh, he's always said that a racer head, uh, no one's gotten it right. You know, he's read interpretations. He, he's not talking about it. Uh, he's talking about the making of it. But he said that no one's ever got gotten a racer head right, and I, I kind of love that. I kind of dig that. Yeah, 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 totally. But uh, but Lynch, uh, but uh, enough of him. Uh, we, we talk of Leila as this stylish filmmaker, and yet his uh, romantic comedy "My Love, My Bride" from 1990 won multiple awards, including Lee for as best new director. So I'm thinking again, asking you, "My Love, My Bride" is this really like a stylish onslaught? It's one of his least stylish onslaughts. You know, it it's it's a beautiful film. He's visually, he's always really good, but it's not. To my mind, a, a, an Amy Unsaid film. You look at the rest of his stuff, you could almost watch Nowhere to Hide, um, you know, The Jewelist, and you could just, by the way it's done, by the visuals, you'd think that's him. My Love, My Bride's much more straightforward. Um, I enjoyed it. I don't think it sums him up in any way. Right on, and uh, yeah, as uh, Paul mentioned, uh, the other movies he's uh, made, uh, among other things, are uh, the likes of Duelist and the psychological drama M from 2007. So, um, uh, so that that's really all from me again, Paul. Uh, when when did you kind of become aware of Lee Mews? And uh, again, in your personal view, why why should anyone pursue this director? How does he stand out compared to other directors? Um, I think he stands out because he's so different. You know, the number of things we write about, the number of podcasts we do where I will go on about, you know, family, social ills, blah. You know what I mean? I I just, I'll always look for the underlying story and really, Amy Young Say has the least of that that you could imagine. He's very, almost unnormally Korean because of that. And that's that's why you should check him out. He's completely different. He stands out because visually his stuff is exceptional. Um, and at a film that can hold you visually with a simple storyline, deserves some credit somewhere along the line. 
And it's not really Kim Kidok uh, like uh, visuals, uh, visual think uh, or like minimal story wise either. I mean, based on Nowhere to Hide, like laser director that makes you know popping movies. You know, they're not uh, necessarily yeah, quiet. Yeah, yeah, and they they are. You know, I, I, again, we're going with you know just them and Duelist if you compare them because they're a similar thing. They are exciting because of the visuals. They're not that Kim Ki Duck arty visual sort of... And I'm, I'm not saying that's bad. I like uh, no, the, not, the Kim Duck movies I've seen. So. Again, you, you mentioned you met the man, uh, Lee Mewse, personal interview one-on-one. Um, how was that? Was it fun to, to meet? Or was it this gloomy guy like in my movies? You know? I'd have, I'd have, I, all the directors have been great. They've all you know, been really open, really chatty. Even Young says really funny. Um, he's just, you know, he'll. But, but you ask a question, he go, ha ha. Um, <laughs> he's really vocal, gesticulates all the time. He's really, as you would imagine, imagine him to be. If you watch Nowhere to Hide or Duelist or whatever, you just think he's going to be larger than life, and he really, really is. Um, really interesting guy um, and that was I have to say that was possibly one of the most stressful interviews I've ever done because I only find out I was doing it at about 1pm and I was due to interview him at 3 wow. and I had, no, I, had, I had no idea that he had been coming or anything um, I just got an email from the Korean Cultural Centre going actually he's here today can you come down and I was like um yeah, so I was, <laughs> I, was, I was in a coffee shop on a mobile phone, writing notes on a mobile phone to ask questions. You know, it was the most stressful couple of hours of, of my life. Why are you so awesome? But exactly. If only, if only I'd known that question before. Um, but in hindsight, it came out as a really good interview because he was so forthcoming and so happy to talk about what he does and what's important to him and the fact that he doesn't know what film is you know he just makes films because he wants to make something that that will visually excite you that will that will make you spend an enjoyable two hours and i think there's a lot to be said for that Im young say on the other hand uh sort of came up at the same time as park Hong su uh Gagman was only a year after Chilsu and Mansu, starring on Sungi. Uh, great film, also on DVD. I think the Korean, uh, not Korean Film Archive, but there was a box set of like classic Korean cinema, and I think it's actually on Kofa, uh, Kofa's website. I'm, I'm, I can't remember off the top of my head. You know, he works also with Park Chung Hoon again in My Love, My Bride, which is I think being remade right now. Uh, and both of those movies did pretty well, and then his next three f- failed miserably, pretty much. And it took him a while to get money and to m- be able to make Nowhere to Hide. And, you know, this was, he was a director that sort of came up and, and hadn't really found his place, and then really began to question, like, oh, what is cinema? And that's really what his films have always been about, cinematic form and style. I mean, even Gagman and My Love, My Bride were really interesting uh in terms of cinematic language that they were using now he's really interested in like exploring the minute like atoms essentially of what film style is what our cinematic elements really are 
and you know this leads to some issues because he's a perfectionist like i said before and you know tends to go over budget <laughs> uh just a little bit uh and and nowhere to hide is really about this movement um but not only about movement but also uh time like how cinema and the cinematic frame can either stretch or speed up time the elliptical nature of the edit and i don't know like they are i guess people say style over substance or style over content but i think he's more about style as content his films doesn't really sit well with audiences or necessarily production companies like duelist and m are frustrating uh, for film experiences for those that need really well thought out stories or logic. Uh, and he recently left the movie Spy, which I think he was working as under the working title Mr. K, uh, which he was saying, oh, it's going to be my James Bond movie, uh, due to creative differences because the studio wanted a regular action spy movie and Im Young Se kind of, I think, had started filming these very serene, tranquil, long takes, you know, spy film. And so I th there is some controversy over uh, copyright and budget, and so he left that and uh, film. Um, and also I think it's interesting that maybe the duelists and uh, sort of the polar opposite of duelists, which is uh, the magicians, which is Song Il-gong, uh, sort of one take, film which is like perfectly minimalist in its, its cinematic style versus Im Young Se which is as far from minimalist as you can get. I mean this is a guy that's really obsessed with how film works and just the style and, and, and how characters move through the frame and how edits impact the frame and how color and uh, light and shadow play uh, against movement. Um, and, and I think he's really been copied. I mean, like Paul was saying, like this is the fight scene, especially at the end, is just constant through, I think this is really the constant through uh, Korean cinema. I mean, there is a tradition, of course, of people fighting in the rain or people fighting in mud, going even back to Flower and Hell, um, you know, with like the epic mud fight at the end of that film. Um, but, you know, like, you see it even in Hollywood. I mean, it's very obvious the Wachowskis had seen this film uh, because the end fight scene in the Matrix trilogy is essentially the exact same, almost beat for beat, of the fight scene in Nowhere to Hide. So let's uh, dive into it. Let's uh, talk Nowhere to Hide. Let's, re let's review it then. Therefore, my brief note, uh, I, I got to steal a quote from IMDb, an IMDb user, because it summarizes uh, my view so perfectly, and the rest of my notes are my own notes, so don't worry about it. Uh, so Timothy Damon, in his user review on IMDb, says, and asks the question, really, style over substance? Perhaps, but mighty impressive style. So, so that's my brief first opinion. What's your brief opinion of Noah I like it is like? I will pretty much agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, it is style to the nth degree, and it's exciting, enjoyable style. Um, I love the way he uses music. I love the way he uses visuals. I love all the fades, all the twists, all the slow motion. I love the characters. I love the fact that Park Jin-hun is, in this case, the badass little thug. And 
he's the good guy. And, you know, Ansu Ki is the well-dressed, you know, quiet, non-speaking, what looks like businessman, and he's the evil one. I love that twist. Um, I, 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 when watching this movie now, I was um, reminded slightly of, but not fully of, uh, because uh, Park uh, Jung's uh, uh, character isn't uh, fairly uh, evil. But uh, uh, do you remember the French movie Doberman? Yeah. And I was reminded of looking at this, wait a minute, is this like close to Doberman where the roles are definitely switched? Because there in that movie, the cops were vile and the bad guys were not as vile at all, really. It, it's really it's really got an air of that, hasn't it? Yeah. So I think Doberman possibly was afterwards, but uh, regardless, that was a minor minor reminder. I mean, you, you can't say in terms of nowhere to hide that he is, you know, a lot of memories of murder and whatever all did the whole cops at that time were thugs blah 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 and he's really he's underlining it but it really doesn't matter because you know he's just he's a policeman a thug because if he wasn't a policeman he'd be a criminal thug and it just it works that I love the fact that the bad guy's the guy that just rides a bike yeah. You know, at the, the 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 thug, the one that that's got blood on him all the time, is actually meant to be the good guy. It just it works. And, and it really, here's a movie that's such an assault of styles that could have been so indulgent, but it isn't. And really, my let's just ask the question again. You touched upon it a little, but it's nowhere to hide. You know, close to like his visual assault in other movies is this perfectly natural uh like frequency and intensity for lee you think uh, in this movie yeah very much so he'll he'll his intensity the subject of his intensity will change if you take the duelist you, you've got this sword fighting lady and a nameless faceless enemy and the the substance of their assault is more a dance with swords. It's it, and it goes on and on and it's as intense, but it's less violently intense. But it is that whole thing. Once you've seen Nowhere to Hide, you know what Amy Young Say does. He's just it's intensely visual. He'll choose something and ramps it up and ramps it up and ramps it up. And then you wouldn't. You would think that, like, it's a first-time director bursting with ideas, like, oh, we're going to make one movie, let's just go for it, and that's not the case, obviously, as we talked to the, in the bio, and I, I can't really explain why I think, why I'm so delighted by all this style, because uh, I really should dislike it. Uh, yes, yeah, totally. It, it is indulgent, it, the plot is secondary, or it's nearly abstract, and... But I think it's cool, and that's the only way I kind of can describe it. I I, I get the I, I get that the ooh, <laughs> like feeling ooh that's cool. Um, it speaks to me on almost a primal level, you know. I can't in detail t- tell you why or orally and visually this is such a slam dunk, uh, uh, but it's rare nowadays to actually yeah. go with that like primal cool like. Pretty colors, <laughs> or pretty grainy black and white or monochrome, as uh, as uh, the first scene in the movie tells us. You know, and I think it opens up from a like an iris, uh, like a, like it's a Warner Brothers cartoon or what have you. 
you know, and you got techno on the soundtrack. Like this is a pumping out film, man. You know, <laughs> you know what is this Atari Teenage Riot on the soundtrack? Like yeah, and you got still frames. But that still frames that represent motion. You know, uh, you know, we, we see him move, uh, move like from one image to another and forward. If that makes sense, you know. Um, so and it's blurry, kind of step framey blurry. And I think that 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 first scene is something that you know, obviously, either you're on or you're completely out. I think. Um, but for me, I'm in you know, least pocket. Uh, Immediately, like, and, and obviously it's a big comic book or manga in motion, partly also. Um, so there's a bunch of like, definitely um, an anime, uh, uh, anime or manga inspiration within all of this. So, or what do you think? Yeah, very much so. And I also love the fact that same thing again. That whole sepia manga still frame thing is on the good character, and when it switches after the title to the bad character, it's full colour, full sunshine, full beauty, with a little girl going down a set of steps. Um, It's just stylistically so different, and it just works with the previous bit. It's it's an assault in the senses. Nowhere to hide reaches out of the camera and smacks you on the head. (laughs) Look at this, like, notice me, but yeah, Yeah. gladly, and smack me on the head, I don't mind. Uh, And uh, you're right, the the assassination scene is obviously one of their most like YouTubed uh, scenes out of the movie. Um, it, it is what it is. It's an assassination scene. Ansun Ki has got his target and he's uh, he takes him out and that's that. But obviously mixing, you know, full color, yellow leaves and that little girl, as you said, and then a scene that transforms into rain and uh, got an immersive atmosphere based on that alone. But it's added upon by the fact that uh, Lee, who probably picked this himself, I just have a feeling, picked uh, the Bee Gees song Holiday as uh, his uh, song for this scene. So perfect. And, and at the very last part of the film, he brings it back in terms of it's, play, it's played by orchestra or whatever. Yes. Instruments rather than the Bee Gees, but that theme's still there and it just brings it right back full circle. It's kind of like uh, the, the final scene as we talk about that. It's like hard boiling, pumping, like fight, 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 like the fight finale. And then you got the better music being that very sad better music because it's a very, obviously, holidays, a very, uh, not an upbeat song or anything. <laughs> it's funny. I mean, I, I like music as much as the other guy. Uh, I, the Bee Gees for me, well, before this movie, was only one thing. And that one thing I hate still to this day. Uh, the Bee Gees were staying alive to me. And I fucking hate yeah. that song with Avengers. Then I heard Holiday. And then in other movies, uh, there's a Hong Kong movie called Yes to You, Yes to Me, Yesterday. Which uh, doesn't feature that song. Which I think is a Stevie Wonder song. But it features the song uh, First of May by the Bee Gees. And it's the theme throughout the movie. Like this very... Uh, uh, it just works for that movie. It's a nostalgic movie. And uh, all of a sudden, like Bee Gees, they're awesome. Where was this? Like, I want to know more. And uh, subsequently, I'm a great big fan of, of that. But the disco just stayed a heck of a way from me. BG's disco. Stay. Saturday Night Fever has an awful lot to answer for. Really. <laughs> it really does. I mean, I'm not damning disco as such, but that song I can't stand for for life of me. I, I like the Bee Gees um, this way. So, uh, uh, and why this 
this scene and other scenes earns being this super hyper stylistic uh with like uh dissolve flash um steel frame dissolves to simulate hand movement the guy who he assassinates puts up his hand to like uh, uh defend himself it just does it earns it it's it's cool it's cool this immersive style that just pops and you ask yourself also okay uh, is this just a series of stylistic highlights every now and again in the movie nope it's a through line. <laughs> yeah. It goes on throughout the movie. <laughs> and, totally. And it does being that. It's not overkill at all, I think. Uh, because Lee also knows how to be uh, to be intense as well as calm. You know, that uh, style can be very uh, beautiful and serene. And style can be very pumping as well. Uh, but it's never this deadly dull art film uh, that, uh, uh, that I personally hate about art films. That, uh, you know, sitting there smoking a cigarette... That that's not fun to me. I'm too impatient for that. Like, uh, yeah. give give me this type of art film instead. This pumping art film where essentially you got metal and techno and BGs on the soundtrack. <laughs> uh, and all of this is a catch the bad guy story with whooshy noises and pretty pictures. And that's all it needs to be. I mean, did you? I mean, do, do you take character depth away from this, or that's not? Anything that a movie really needs to concern itself with, or, or it doesn't concern itself with, or, or how do you view the characters? I think it's there vaguely if you want to look for it, but why would you want to look for it? <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, this is meant to be an assault of the senses. It's meant to be a man and man fight, which it ultimately is. And why should you take it for anything more? It doesn't need. It doesn't. I mean, it doesn't need to be anything more. And just on a very, very sideish note, if anybody's listening to this thinking, well, it doesn't sound like a very good story. I won't bother. There's a there's a scene in the rain in Nowhere to Hide that is one of the most important scenes in Korean film. Full stop. For years you'll watch Korean films where there are two men fighting in the rain and you will say, that's from nowhere to hide. <laughs> shit, shit, even in Save the Green Planet, they, they fight not in the rain, but amongst uh, uh, sprinklers being set off uh, indoors. <laughs> it's it's all the same thing. In a previous podcast we did, I just watched a film called Confession of Murder and the first scene in it is the last scene in Nowhere to Hide and that was 2013. Wow. So... You know, Nowhere to Hide has a lot to say and has influenced so much Korean film in terms of how they do fight scenes. It's really important and it's gutsy. It's not to be missed, essentially. So on the theme of fight scenes, let's let's talk like a chase of fight scene, if you will. I love stupid humor like this. Like when uh, one of the many chases by Park's character of uh, informers, if you will, um, he chases a guy down that I think uh, I think he comes out with a girl from um, he's been at a club that informer guy, and I think he's like, sort of attempting to abuse the girl he's with, and that's the scene where I thought of, I was reminded of Doberman for a while. Like, oh, was this what Park did? Like, watching watch other guys just beat up poor girls or what have you? But no, he comes to her rescue. He chases him down, and <laughs> it's, it's a wonderful scene because uh, they uh, they run for a while. You know, they're, they're humans. They can't, they're not um, invincible, um, you know, athletes or what have you. They, 
it's kind of casual running as they try to catch up with each other. And you kind of need to do that. You kind of need to keep an even pace to not fall on your ass completely <laughs> if you chase someone. So they're like, they're just casually running and I'll get you, I'll get you. And eventually, Park can reach out to him and uh, and get him. And I, I love stupid stuff like that. It's, um, it's, it's not very... It can be argued to be low-key, but... I love stupid crap like that. that that's yeah, a, I agree. That's I that agree. tickles me. Like be, because Lee is not afraid to be silly. Uh, and this movie is very silly at points. Um, I mean, for heaven's sake, uh, when he, uh, the second guy, kind of uh, uh, chases and uh, eventually puts him to be a station for, um, for interrogation is this uh, boxer. And what do they do before they, before they start fighting? They size each other up like bulls. And it's one of those why not moments because Lee apparently has all the freedom in the world to do whatever the hell he wants. Uh, that's the point that just popped up, popped into my head. No one said no to Lee in this movie, apparently. And it just works. You know, I, him him being allowed to do it or just deciding that he's going to do it, it works. <laughs> and even like, oh, it's my favorite moment uh, that, I, that I remember because uh, I have seen this movie before. My favorite moment at the tail end of this scene is they chase each other. They built up their fight through anime-like backgrounds in motion. And they they build up that fight and all they do is kind of struggle, like feeble, in a feeble way struggle. But then you get a shadow fight where where they really go at each other. And it's, and it's so powerful, that the way they throw each other to the floor and what have you, that the letterbox frame bounces. And there you go, <laughs> you know, like the widescreen thing, like boom. <laughs> and that's, you know, wh- why not? At that point, you know, all exactly. bets are off. Uh, what do you think of the various uh, scenes in the police station with the police beating the? You know, we we we've seen plenty of scenes in movies where suspects are beat up, but there's something about this movie. They they fucking terrorized these poor sub- suspects, and it's funny as hell. Yeah, and, and there's the thing. Some of it is incredibly funny, you know, where they've got, I think it's Meathead, they've got him, you know, strung up on a bar and he's just pushing him back and forward, asking him <laughs> the same question, kicks him a couple of times, and the next thing they're eating noodles together. He asks for more, you know, of the liquid that goes along with the noodles, so, you know, what does the main character do? Kicks him. Beats him again. It's just. It's I love. Got this. I love whenever Park uh, jump uh, uh, becomes violent uh, after Blue because he is this fog. It's like and very charming to like you enjoying yourself. <laughs> and that just totally. leads to violence. <laughs> but but even in the police station, there's like seven or eight of them just surrounding one suspect. Uh, you know, the good cop, bad cop kind of routine a little bit, and they just beat. They, they go at these guys, and I read a criticism about this. I think uh, that came from stateside that uh, this movie was um, like uh, criticized for its uh, depiction of police violence, but it's it's hilarious. It's not meant to be. It's not meant to be serious. For heaven's sake! After they beat up one of the guys, he, he's got uh, footmark, uh, uh, foot uh, mark, yeah, it's big boot boot mark on his face, and, and that's it, it's like a cartoon. For heaven's sake! It's not not a comment on police brutality in Korean police force. No, it just, none of that matters. You know, it's just, it's fun. If beating up someone can be fun. 
But you know what I mean, it really Absolutely. is. Absolutely. I was reminded a little bit about uh, a recurring gag in several uh, Stephen Chow movies where uh, uh, like seven or eight people jump on one guy, you know, or kick one guy to the floor, and it's some of the most hilarious stuff in Stephen Chow movies where <laughs> it happens like very quickly. <laughs> Uh, there it's gag, a gag a minute in some of those Stephen Chow movies here in Nowhere to Hide I mean what could the term be instead of a gag a minute it's style I mean it does that it work really, it really is and it goes back to what you said at the very very start you know there will be no mercy and it's it's no mercy of style it's just there from start to finish through every punch through every freeze frame it's just stylish what do you think when the movie calms down, though, for uh, a little bit of drama? For instance, Park uh, Park Jung goes home to his um, sister, I believe. So, uh, what do you think when a movie like does a serene uh, style? I mean, that personally, that worked for me because it gave me at least a little bit of character empathy. Not that it's necessary, but it gave me something to grab onto, and it gives you a little bit of a break because. You know, the first half of that film is just, it's an onslaught. Uh, I think it, I think it works. I think it's needed, but that's a personal opinion. I, I, I do agree. I think it is needed. And at that point, you know, we've had a little bit of a welcome development in terms of uh, uh, the young Terminator-like cop uh, played by, uh, I think it's uh, the actor Jang Dong-gun, uh, who seems like this... Yeah, Terminator cop. Even if he's young, he can't go wrong, and he actually shoots somebody at one point, and then kind of uh, goes into, you know, that dramatic like spiral downwards. Wards. And uh, there's a wonderful scene in the snow between uh, Park and Jang Dong Gun. Want to share any particular note on that? Because uh, there you see Park's uh, character's uh, warmth rather than his uh, violent, <laughs> violent, brutish ways. Very much so, and I think it's it's offset quite well against the other characters. Um, and I think again, it sort of it gives you that little bit of empathy because there's up until those points, there's there's not a lot there. There's just style, mm-hmm. um, and I think it just it gives you something to grab onto so that when you've when you, the film's finished, you feel that you did watch a story and you did feel for the characters and you did understand the characters in a way. And it's a, it's a scene set in snow and it's a snowball fight too, so it's uh, it's uh, kind of beautiful. Uh, snow snow often is, you know. So um, and again, it's it's it has got that visual memorability to it. Yes. Oh, definitely. I mean, it stands out. It's amazing that you remember so so much of it, despite it being such uh, an onslaught, as you said. Yeah. Um, there, there are many, many set pieces that stand out. And uh, what I think Lee is very good at, in uh, particularly in terms of the style, is he's very good at the slow motion, chaotic fights in cramped spaces. Uh, one is in a small apartment where they all like fight to get to the door because Amsung Ki has just arrived and they, like they just try to swim through a sea of people and that's in slow motion and uh, it uh, happens on the train as well uh, those are some of my favorite moments those chaotic fights uh, what do you think in terms of how he handles uh, that he's just he's got his finger on the pulse the whole way through this 
You know, I like you say, any other film that was like this, I would be upset about a lot of the time. But I think he just hits the right mark all the time. That whole slow motion in the cramped spaces, it gives it, there, there's a humor to it and there's, there's a grippingness to it and it just, it offsets everything else. It's just superb. That's what it comes down to. And uh, finally, again, we won't spoil too much, but it's important. As, as you said, it's important to talk of the uh, final fight scene in the rain. And I mean, uh, was this such a stylistic like inspiration for many to uh, to just kind of redo their way? Uh, and, and and yeah, does it still like is that effect still felt the way Lee portrayed? like a climactic fight or a fight in the rain at all, you know, because it doesn't sound too revolutionary or anything. No, certainly doesn't, but it it's copied so much that it almost speaks for itself. And this the sad thing is that no matter how good a film is that's got a fight scene in the rain, that's so iconic that when you watch it, you think, nowhere to hide. And it almost takes away from any film by using it because it's been done and I don't think it can be done better than Amy Young said did it you know it's just it's the number of films in Korea that don't have huge rain scenes I don't think there are any um, but you know those fight scenes will always reek of nowhere to hide and they're so similar that I, I firmly refuse to believe that directors haven't actually looked at it and thought, I want to have that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so, so, so iconic. Um, I honestly believe they copied him and they will continue to because it's just the scene to all, end all scenes, certainly in nowhere where they hide it is. It's funny too that the actors Park Jung Hoon and An Sung Ki. I, I read something that they um, they quite, kind of went at each other here. That it's not a like uh, a super safe choreographed uh, stunt scene or anything. They they probably took some uh, some 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 blows in their various struggles and uh, and uh, some hits were a little bit too real than movie movie hitting <laughs> and maybe maybe normally is uh, maybe the only real staged. Uh, uh, hit in this final fight scene is when they all, when they hit each other at the same time in slow motion and that yeah, uh, and it freezes and whatever yeah, exactly, but it's a just like the assassination scene, it's a uh, scene set, you know, partially in sun and rain, which uh, makes it uh, quite um, memorable as well, and as you said, it has the bed of uh, music that's not the Bee Gees singing holiday, but now it's the theme of of this fight scene and it doesn't really make sense because here holiday like projects uh, sadness that song and it's not really a sad scene it's a uh, finale it's the climax it's the guy come guys going at each other like man and then you got holiday underneath it which i think is uh either it means something to lee or he just thinks that's funny it may well do and you know considering the fact that he does enjoy a good giggle. Um, I would imagine. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be surprised if he put it under thinking. You know, that'll that'll be funny. Um, I think it works just 
because it, it reiterates that first murder scene with the Bee Gees, it just subconsciously hits you that you've come full circle. I had also seen this like uh, probably 2002 or so when it had first come out. I had gotten the DVD, a Korean DVD uh, with the Korean edit, uh, and I was just blown away by, you know... Not the plot, because that's pretty boring in one note. I mean, it's just one long chase sequence, but by the way, the movie played with time and space. Uh, and I, I, I think I'm struck most by just this one shot of when I think they're waiting for An's character or something, and the police detectives are all stressed, and it's hot, and, you know, it's Pusan, it's muggy. Uh, and there's this bead of sweat that just comes down the guy's head, and, like, the, the camera follows it all the way down and I think it hits like the guy's shoe or the floor or whatever I mean it's just like the way things are sped up and slowed down it's not not like Zack Snyder's sort of ramp up ramp down action but this is really like aware formalistically aware of uh itself and sort of the history I mean this is a very informed uh director about film language and the history of film language and how edits are made and he's obviously watched you know a massive amount of cinema um of all nations to sort of come up with his st- signature style oh yeah and i think you guys were talking a bit about jonathan demi and, and he actually did make a deal and park john hoon acted in uh truth about charlie which is demi's remake of charade uh, which a lot of people kind of forgot existed. And that was the deal, I think, that the Tartan DVD was talking about. Because uh, Demi saw this film and was like, oh my god, Park Chung-hoon, I, I need him uh, in my film. And he actually speaks English very well, and he went to graduate school at NYU. So I think that made it a little easier for him to transition. I don't know if Yim young would ever really transition to Hollywood. I think that would be a disaster uh, unless he was transitioning and making like an independent feature on his own. Um, and I mean, I would really eventually love to see him do a spy movie. Uh, he was supposed to do a movie, a Japanese film, like based off of Miyamoto Musashi's character. Uh, and I don't know what happened to that. I think funding may have fallen through. I'm not sure. But anyway, this, this movie is really, uh, also about space and how, you know, like I said, how, like characters move through the frame and you know it's about Pusan as a city but Pusan really doesn't look like Pusan it's like the crazy fever dream of a cinematic Pusan and I think Tony Raines once said that even his location sets look like sound stages and I think that you know that's sort of jives with what I've heard from people uh you know, people saying, oh, yeah, you know, like, we were out there until four in the morning to get a three-second shot of the wall because he wanted the shadows on the bricks on the wall just perfectly in the background um, and the colors just right. Um, So, yeah, I'm I'm sort of finding myself hard-pressed to sort of come up with anything brilliant or, you know, crazy to say about this film that you guys haven't already said, um, but I just think... You know, I agree with pretty much everything you both said about both of these films. Uh, they're absolutely important. Uh, and I think this sort of run of what's Korean cinema, where we've sort of been pairing classics with maybe contemporary or two classics together, I've just, it's exciting for me. Um, because I, I've really given my crazy 
schedule right now, we haven't been able to do anything with Cine Awesome. We sort of stopped recording, and sadly to say, we've sort of been put on long-term indefinite hiatus. Uh, but, you know, this is the exact reason why I love doing things like the film festival, programming two films to juxtapose, you know, whatever together. I guess this is me signing off. You can follow me on Twitter, uh, at Rufus Duram, uh, or you can... Sort of, if you're in New York and you want to know what we're doing, uh, go to facebook.com slash NYAFF. That's the New York Asian Film Festival, uh, where I'm director of operations. Uh, and we're expanding and we're, we're doing a lot more programs. We just did an old school Kung Fu Festival looking at Lao Kar Lung. Uh, we're looking at some, uh, more events in the fall that I can't talk about yet, but they're pretty exciting. And the summer, uh, by the time this gets out, uh, you can probably go to subwaycinema.com backslash NYAFF14, uh, to see the lineup. Um, and it's gonna be pretty exciting. And as always, it was a pleasure even to be able to record this little bit part for, uh, What's Korean Cinema. Uh, you guys are awesome. Uh, and next time I will try even harder to make the main recording session. Alright, thanks. Yeah, so certainly, uh, certainly just a high recommendation. I have no other notes. I just, um, I, I watched the short version of the film. Uh, I mean, we can get into availability. Therefore, it's, uh, uh, but, but I didn't miss anything, uh, because I've seen the long version of the film and I've seen the short version of the film, but I still didn't miss anything seeing this. But as for availability, it's been out there over the years. Uh, as we said, it was the first Korean movie to hit DVD in the UK under the Tartan Asia Extreme banner, and this is the shortened 97-98 international version of the film. And uh, I owned a Korean DVD once, and I think it's about 10-12 minutes longer, so it's not even two hours. And, uh, we, you know, watching this, I, I didn't miss any of my favorite bits. I'm thinking the editing was pretty well done. Uh, do you have any spontaneous notes on if this plays better in the shorter version or if it's uh, or the longer version is the only one you've seen? Uh, pretty much the longer version is the only one I've seen, so I can only surmise, but considering the fact that there are a lot of straight off set pieces and n taken away from here, there or wherever isn't really going to affect the storyline. I don't actually think you'd notice No, I mean, I, I think I saw, I didn't even know that I saw a different edit of the movie. And uh, as I said, if the scene where the, the letterbox frame bounces was gone, then that would have affected me because I love that notion so much that, uh, you know, a fight scene, they throw each other to the ground and then, boom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that's the clearly, clearly one of your favorite scenes. I like that. It's, it's, it's so indulgent and so much fun. Like, yeah, they're so powerful. <laughs> and it can kind of confuse uh, uh, operators to at the cinema. Like, what's going on? <laughs> it bounced. <laughs> Like that scene in Fight Club where, like, uh, Tyler Durden is uh, speaking to himself, and it's so powerful that uh, you, you see the movie like almost, uh, almost uh, get unhinged from. Mm. And uh, so <laughs> that's a way to create panic. Like, what's going on? What's going on? Uh, but uh, uh, that's the Tartan DVD. You can still get this old Tartan DVD. I think uh, even new. Um, so it's still somewhat in circulation. You happen to nip into certainly in the UK if you nip into. A DVD retailer, nowhere to hide by three quid. So, 
Mm. Uh, it's not perfect looking either. I mean, it's from a cinema print, I believe, yeah, but it's fine for a good price. I mean, I don't uh, pay uh, like 10, 15, 20 pounds for it. I don't think that's worth that. Uh, I'm not saying I'm cheap or anything, but I think uh, by now it's uh, it's um, paying, paying expensive prices for it. It's not really worth it. Uh, there's also available Hong Kong DVDs of the Korean version. Uh, um, the old Korean DVD that I, ha- that I used to have was uh, letterboxed. Uh, not anamorphic, but they flagged it anamorphically, so it looked weird. It was stretched, uh, which could make sense for the movie, but they just uh, fucked up. That, that's what they did. Uh, I heard of an edition in Korea, but I couldn't find it on Yes Asia anyway. That featured uh, like a set that had both cuts, um, and that might have corrected the aspect ratio, but I, I haven't seen that. It, it, what, what edition is it that you own? Paul? I've pretty much got what I guess was the first release edition of Korea, which was just straight anamorphic. Um, I haven't actually heard of one that's got both on it. Yeah, yeah. a friend of mine replied to me on Facebook saying that, but I couldn't find it listed, so maybe it's just a, one of those limited editions that went out of print. And it's the same thing with, with all those Korean DVDs. You don't get them when they come out. You, they're gone. You know, and you're ending up left with either Hong Kong version or UK or whatever. What would be a suitable limited edition like trinket to go along with nowhere to hide like, <laughs> like you know with, with my size girl it was the egg uh, so like uh, what would be something good for nowhere to hide I, I, I guess I you just have to wrap it up in a fist wouldn't you yeah yeah I suppose that it or like a vial of uh, rainwater or something <laughs> yeah. yeah maybe so <laughs> It's like actual rainwater. No, it's fucking tap water. But they'll, they'll, they'll pay 50 pounds or dollars for it. You know, it's limited. And I think most people would. Some people would. I know. I know there are people out there who would. Uh, there's also a US DVD by Lionsgate available, and that is, as far as I know, also the Korean version. So there's plenty of DVDs out there. Uh, no Blu-ray, as far as I know. At least not the English subtitle, but it would have been good to uh, see a nice, uh, nice grainy-looking upgrade of this with uh, with uh, the colors it deserves and what have you. So, uh, so that's it. No to hide. Done and dusted. Uh, Next episode, we have nothing new announced as such, but uh, we'll certainly keep you informed and we'll, as always, have uh, discussions behind the scenes, what to do, what old and what new kind of to feature. This time it was uh, uh, something newer than we've done in the past. It was not one of those 50s, 60s movies, but rather 88 and 99. But uh, that's, per definition, very, very, very old. And uh, By the way, I never asked this. Uh, do you know if uh, Lee has... Uh, uh, got an office from uh, Hollywood based on Noah's Hide? Oh, no. Now that you mentioned that, I have a funny feeling that he has or had. Um, I don't know if he followed it up. I need to I need to check that out. Because I imagine, like, based on one movie, like, we're bringing you over, man. Just, just when you say it, I know for a fact that at least one of the actors, because of Nowhere to Hide, got an offer of an American movie and did it in about 2002. Um, I have a funny feeling Amy Young say was offered it, but as yet, obviously hasn't done it. Well, there was actually, now that I think of it, I, I read the uh, one of the few extras on the Totten DVD was some um, uh, notes by some uh, journalists, and they mentioned that uh, um, Jonathan Demi uh, of Silence of the Lambs fame uh, apparently, like, had locked up a deal with uh, uh, with Lee or and or uh, one of the actors or two of the actors for a future project, but uh, that obviously never happened. Uh, no, obviously, yeah. Uh, 
So out, out of all people, you never see like Jonathan Demme being very like yeah, uh, like active in D circles or super active at all. But uh, there you go. But uh, clearly, uh, Lee, Lee Myung uh, feels at home in Korea and uh, is doing his thing there. And uh, so look out for Antel, uh, hopefully being released in 2014. So we'll see what uh, what that'll be like. Fingers crossed for more style. Alrighty, uh, but uh, okay, we'll announce as I said in the in the Facebook group and what have you uh, when we have our next two selections. I mean, I've seen so few Korean movies and now I'm running out of my favorites almost. So <laughs> you've seen a lot of Korean movies by now. I mean, but but well, I, I can't like pick one that's um, like I want to cover for nostalgia's sake anymore. Like, like now it's like. Uh, I just need to go with two new ones, you know. So, uh, but uh, like, that's not a bad thing. I mean, like, uh, yeah, I'm looking at my shelf. I mean, I don't have more than maybe like ten Korean movies. I mean, it's uh, if that. And uh, one of the ones we haven't talked about that is I do like, but uh, I'm not sure. Uh, it's uh, up for examination yet. Anyway, it's a tale of two sisters. Obviously great, but um, I don't feel it yet anyway. Like uh, because the likes of Phylan and Save the Green Planet, they were like really like oh, I want to talk about them. They're super personal choices on mine. They're really like cool discoveries. Tale of Two Sisters, quite dug, but it doesn't um, get me. Uh, uh, I don't get the tingly uh, thinking of the prospect of talking about it yet anyway. So and it's got to get you tingly before before it's worth doing. I totally agree. A bit, yeah. So uh, maybe we'll go with two, for me, completely unknown uh, Kofa selections. But uh, uh, we'll see. But uh, keep an eye out on the Facebook group. But in the meantime, uh, brief contact information again. This has been What's Korean Cinema on the Podcast on Fire Network, podcastonfire.com for these shows and the bonus episodes. Email podcastonfire at googlemail.com. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash POF Network. And also join the discussion group. Easiest way to find type in Podcast on Fire Network in the Facebook search bar. Tweet us, twitter.com forward slash Podcast on Fire and follow us, obviously. My writing, sogoodreviews.com, my video reviewing, sleazykvideo.com, and my tweets, twitter.com forward slash sogoodreviews. What's Korean Cinema is on iTunes. Rate, and if you have the time, please leave a written comment as well. And if you don't like downloading podcasts to your device, Stream us via Stitcher Radio online, but also through the application available to your iPhone, iPad, or Android. And once you're in Stitcher, type in What's Korean Cinema, and that should give you the uh, latest search results and also the option to add us to your favorites. And uh, your plug uh, again, really quick, Paul. Uh, I'm Paul. Nice to talk to you. <laughs> I run Hangul Celluloid. I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash Hangul Celluloid. I'm on Twitter at twitter.com slash Hangul Celluloid. Check out the site. Check out the interviews that we talked about tonight. You know, visit and come back. Oh, indeed. And uh, we'll certainly link to those two specific uh, interviews uh, by uh, with the directors of uh, tonight's movies. So you can have, all have a gander at that. But... Uh, that's uh, that's us. So uh, we are signing off the two that were here live, so to say. But uh, obviously we had Rufus separately. So on behalf of uh, Rufus, uh, this is uh, Kennedy and uh, Paul signing off. So thank you, everybody, and uh, see you next time. See you guys. You know, we used to have like a sign-off, uh, a jokey sign-off uh, on behalf of me. Too fucking long. <laughs> But uh, no, I don't feel like it anymore. <laughs> you know? Well, you know, you gotta do what you feel. Just like uh, you I, I, I've done like three variations of it. Like 
if I didn't like it too fucking long if I liked it too fucking long and that's I don't know <laughs> and neutral like hmm too fucking long hmm <laughs> In, indifferent I'm just the Irish contingent that's just happy to go see you bye yes smile if not then you're throwing stones throwing stones throwing stones beep 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 Beep, beep.